Hey, what's up, folks? This is Chris Kern, and you're listening to Give Me Back My Pro Wrestling. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. This is Steve Bowtie Bryant here. Back in the 90s, I was a pro wrestling photographer for the South, and I released what might have been one of the original sets of indie trading cards. I ran across some of these original sets. They were up in Randall Fanning's attic all this time. PG-13 rookie card, Ricky Morton, George Weingroff as the Sheep, Chris Champion, Reno Riggins, Billy Montana, Gary Valiant, the Scorpion, the Medic, Rick Reynolds, Jeff Daniels, Mephisto and Dante, Ben Jordan, Steve Neely, Marcus Woodrow, Clinton Charisma, Little Farmer John. If you'd like an opportunity to get these cards, contact me now. You can get them for only $49.99. Contact me at stevebowtiebryant at icloud.com. Get your set now while supplies last. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Give Me Back My Pro Wrestling. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome one more time to the Give Me Back, my pro wrestling podcast. And I'm here as always with my brother from the same father and mother, the plastic sheik, Jared Street. What you doing, sheik? How you doing today? Man, just relaxing today. Just uh, got a day off and trying to make the most of it. Nice, nice. Have you been in the pool today? Is it too chilly? Yeah, it's too chilly. We're the, the month of September has been pretty chilly this little bit, so it's been hard to... yeah. We we could run a heater, but it's uses a lot of propane. So yeah, that sounds nice though. A nice little heated pool. <laughs> well, and and the heated pool is nice, but it's always when you're getting out. And it's yeah. like, oh my gosh, it's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, man, you know enough about the pools. We got a good one today, brother. We've got Mister Chris Kern on the show. I'm excited for this one. Yeah, man. I think it's going to be another good one. Um, you know, unfortunately, I I don't know a lot about Chris, but. Uh, you know, from the things I've heard and matches I've seen, it's going to be a good one. Oh, yeah. Neither do I. But either way, I, I think sometimes that's nice for the show because, you know, it's a learning process for all of us. And it'll be good to learn about a guy that everybody I know respects and has had a great career for himself, you know. And from this, the research I've done and the studies I've done on the show for the interview, I'm I'm excited to talk to him because he's done a lot of stuff and, and he's met a lot of cool people and he's worked around a lot of stuff. So, yeah, I'm, I'm ready for that. Now, to kind of go back backtrack a little bit we did have ben jordan of course you've heard us talk about that and eron hatchet both doing great thank you all so much for listening as always we hope you enjoyed them both you know definitely you know learned a lot from them as well even though i know them a little bit better than i do chris it's just always fun to have all these guys on the show man and just just hear their stories we've got some cool stuff coming up too i'm i'm excited man i feel like we're on a roll here yeah i mean and another good thing like we're gonna get a maybe 
talked to Chris about uh, Eron a little bit. You know, he remembered Eron had nothing but praise for him. So yeah, first match. He says his first match was Chris Kern, and it's one of his favorites of all time. So yeah, very cool. Yeah. Very cool to have that tie-in, especially one after the other. Who do I hear in the background there? You got little Sheik here. Well, tell him to say hi to the listeners. Say hello. Say hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. <laughs> hey, <laughs> that's the Paxton man himself, little plastic Sheik. So, yeah, that's cool. We got a little run in. He did a little yeah, run in. Yeah, a little run in. Yeah. yeah he, uh, he brought uh, me a uh, Robin, you know, the old Super Friends thing. The leg had came off, and I just popped it back on for him. So There you go. The Plastic Sheik. Dr. Plastic Sheik here. <laughs> Dr. Plastic Sheik. Yeah, I think we tried that one for a minute, too. But, yeah, you're just, you're just piling on the nicknames. But, anyway, yeah. Well, you know, do you have anything else you'd like to talk about before we get the man on himself? No, man, I'd say let's get it going. All right. I like your thinking there. Let's get it going. We'll be right back with Chris Kern on Give Me Back My Pro Wrestling after these messages. Hey, guys, this is Wolfie D from PG-13. Check out my podcast, Live and in Color, with Wolfie D every Monday at noon. We're talking Memphis. We're talking ECW, WCW, WWF, everywhere that I've been. We even have some great guests, some Hall of Famers on the show with us every Monday, Live and in Color with Wolfie D. Join me, Gene Jackson, for the Jackson Interaction Podcast, where I'll be doing one-on-one interviews with people from the world of professional wrestling, as well as stand-up comedy. You can get them anywhere podcasts are available in both video and audio form, but you can find them all at GeneJacksonPod.com. All right, we are back with more from the Give Me Back My Pro Wrestling Podcast. And, Jared, we've got another great guest today in the one and only Chris Kern. Chris, how you doing today, brother? Man, I couldn't be much better. It's my it's my pleasure to be here with you. Hey, our hey, pleasure. To, yeah. Our pleasure to have you, yeah. Absolutely. Our pleasure to have you. Man, have you ever done a podcast before? Uh, maybe one or two, but not too many. Okay. Okay. Well, we just ask you a bunch of questions. We'll have some fun. The cool thing is, man, is I unfortunately don't really know you and it, it'll be like a learning process for me too. And I think we'll have a lot of fun, man. Yeah, I hope so too. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have fun. So to start everything off on every show, we always go to the very first question from the plastic chic himself, Jared Street. Go ahead, Jared, kick it off. All right, Chris. So this is my favorite question. It lets us get to know you. It lets the audience get to know you. Talk about you're like top four or five wrestlers all time, like your Mount Rushmore of wrestling, people who influenced you or that you were big fans of or whatever. Mount Rushmore. All right. Let's see. Uh, I'd have to go with uh, Jackie Fargo, number one. Uh, number two, I guess, would have to be Ric Flair. Woo! Number, th- mm-hmm. number three, Jerry Lawler. Oh, man. Dr. D, David Schultz. Oh, oh man. wow! Nice, love it, love it. Beautiful Bobby Eaton. Golly, yes, yeah. And one more Ricky Morton. Oh man, oh, man. dude, you are yes, hitting. Don't get much better than that. Yeah, we are hitting them all. I love it. I tell you what, I know we're gonna get along with you today, brother. It's gonna be a good show because that that list right there tells you everything, man. Really love that. I love that question. That's why we put it at the very beginning because it lets everybody know kind of where you're coming from. So I love that. I want to give I want to give a little explanation of that. Yeah, please, sure. Yeah. Number one, Jackie Fargo, because he influenced me at a, as a five year old kid. Number two, Ric Flair, because I think he's the world's greatest heavyweight champion that ever lived. Yeah. 
Number three, uh, Jerry Lawler, because he's so versatile, either heel or babyface. He was great at both. Number four, Dr. D, David Schultz, because he was the best heel, in my opinion. I think he was the best heel for the money. And number five, Bobby Eaton, as the greatest worker of all time that ever put on a pair of boots. Absolutely, yeah. And number six, Ricky Morton is the best salesman of all time. Yeah, yeah. That's why. so, so were you a five-year-old doing the Fargo strut? Were you doing that? Like in the ring with Jackie Fargo, believe it or oh, not. Oh man! I had gone. Story is, story is, I lived in Nashville. My mom and stepdad owned a restaurant right at the foothill of the Fairground Sports Arena, a place called Bobby's Catfish Cabin, when Fair Park was still in business. We were right across the street from Fair Park. I went to school at the elementary school right across the street, Falls Hamilton Elementary. Yeah. As a five-year-old kid, Jackie used to come into the restaurant all the time. And my mom worked in a place called, she also worked on the side at a little place called the Flamingo Lounge, which Jackie was a regular customer there. And one night, Jackie was inebriated just a little bit, but (laughs) he he told my mom, he said, listen, I've got all girls. I don't have any boys, but I want that boy of yours, that little Chris boy. I want that boy of yours. I got I got a Halliburton briefcase in the trunk with $10,000 in it. I want to buy that little boy of yours. <laughs> oh, my yeah, God. <laughs> and in, 19, in 1975, $10,000 was a lot of money. Yes, sir. Yeah. He said, Jackie, Jackie, kiss my ass. I'm not selling you my son. He said, okay, well, we'll go to the bank in the morning. I'll get another $10,000. I'll give you $20,000 for him. I want a boy. I ain't got nothing but girls. I want a boy. She said, Jackie, you're drunk. Go home and go to sleep. So I never heard any more about that. But every time, I guess not every time, but a lot of times when Jackie was on the car and I'd be on the front row, he would point to me and give me the Iggy to come and get in the ring with him and do the Fargo strut. Now, fast forward a few years up until 20, what was it, 2015 that he came to Tullahoma. Mm -hmm. He came to Tullahoma in about 2015, and I asked him if he remembered that. And he said, you know, he said, if I did do that, I'm not denying that I did it. I probably did. <laughs> but I remember I remember having uh, a kid in Nashville. I had a kid in Memphis. I had a kid in Louisville. I had a kid in Chattanooga that I would let in the ring and do the Fargo stroke. I was like, dang, man, I thought I was the only one, you know? <laughs> oh, dude, yeah, seriously. <laughs> but, at least, yeah. but at least I had that privilege and that honor. And when I was a kid, my family was kind of in with the wrestling business. My aunt, that, my aunt Sherry, dated Andre the Giant and a guy named Cowboy Ray Parker. Oh my God, this is uh, awesome! One half, of the, one half of the Texas Outlaws, and wow. Cowboy, made, Cowboy made me a wrestling belt. And I remember being at Cowboy's house all the time when I was a little kid, and he Man. he took me. So yeah, and she used to have to ride with Tommy Sloan because if. Nick Gouis had found out that she was uh, like his girlfriend. He could have got fired, you know, because back then no wives or girlfriends were allowed to go to the show. Yeah. And old Tommy Tommy Sloan, the referee, was gay, and Sherry used to ride to the matches with Tommy Sloan, so Nick wouldn't suspect anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dude, that is wild. I've been around wrestling all my life, man. I fell in love with it as a kid. And I'm still in love with it today. I'm I'm still in love with old school wrestling today. Oh, I'm not yeah. in love. With yeah, it's us too. I'm yeah. not in love with the shit that they've got now. Yeah, yeah. amen. So I, I I really appreciate the David Schultz on there because man, people just people know him 
unfortunately only from that the john stossel incident where he smacks him and they don't really know how good a heel he was and and they need to watch, a, they need, yeah they need to watch some videotapes from the old memphis days yeah he was the original stone cold he was so ahead of his time i yeah. mean honestly yeah. He really right. was. And, you know, to be honest, he's extremely underrated at that. And that, you know, whether or not that John Stossel slap was planned or not, unfortunately, it did veto his career there for a little while, you know, and he, he didn't get to really run with Hogan like he should have been. He would have been an incredible heel for Hogan. I mean, seriously. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. They would have made a ton of money, ton of Absolutely. money. Absolutely. Okay. So who was it that dated Andre? Repeat that one more time. My, uh, my mom's cousin, her name was Sherry. Okay. Sherry, All right. Sherry, Sherry Markham was his name. That was his Nashville rat, I guess. So we don't want to get deep down dirty here, but tell us, did you have it? Did she tell you any Andre stories at all? No, I mean, I remember being in the car with Andre. Uh, my mom oh, wow. owned a, my mom owned a Volkswagen um, station wagon, and we used to have to take the front seat out of the station wagon so Andre could sit in the back seat, and I would sit in the back seat with Andre. And wow. Yeah, God. he was cool. Man, okay, so how old were you then? Four, five. Four, five. Six. And you're and you're looking at this giant, literal giant, not a yeah. not a not a make believe giant. This is a real deal. This guy's bigger <laughs> than the. So how did that feel? I mean, okay, just take yourself. And I know that's tough to remember so far, but I'm I'm sure that's etched in your memory forever. Tell me how you felt sitting beside this literal giant. Scared to death. Yeah, Scared yeah. To death. And, and when he would talk, I couldn't understand anything he said. You know his. French Canadian, yeah. his, his slang was bad back then, and you could right. barely understand him. Hello, Chris. But, uh, my, mom, <laughs> my mom in the restaurant, he came in one time and ordered everything on the menu and sat there and ate every everything that she had on the menu. Oh, oh my God. Oh, my God. So, yeah. you know, that's so funny. So I want to kind of dial it back to Jackie for a second because you've just blown open this whole show, brother, and I yeah. love it. So $20,000 in the 70s relates now to around $160,000. So obviously. Yeah, she turned it down. Obviously, any good mother would do that. Even, <laughs> I mean, but if you think about it, in today's terms, she turned down $160,000. Man, that's crazy. And I'm going to tell you, I, I, I wasn't there, but she told me about it, and I believe her. You know what yeah. I mean? I believe, I believe that Jackie got drunk and really wanted to, to buy yeah. me. That's hilarious, man. Holy yeah. cow. Well, okay, so this kind of leads into my first question. You've answered a lot of it, but I do like to, you know, get it out there. So your younger days, where were you born? Where did you go to high school? That kind of stuff. Born born in Fayetteville. Mm-hmm. Moved moved to Nashville when I was one. Stayed there until I was seven. Okay. And then moved back to Fayetteville. And I I pretty much have been here most of my adult life. Um of Fayetteville, Tennessee, and I went to school at Lincoln County High School. Okay. And I, I only made it till the 10th grade, and okay. I was 17, 17 years old, got held back a couple of times. But when I, when I was 17, uh, I found Robert Wallace, and he said he would agree to train me to wrestle, and I quit school. And I just come home and told mom that I found my dream, and I'm going to live it, you know? Yeah. And so when was um, it that you said you started liking wrestling? You said five, four or five, around that age? Four, yeah, around four or five years old. I used to go to the fairgrounds back before 
the new building, they still had the mother's building. It was it was before the mother's building had burnt down. I so, still remember going to that building. Before the sports arena, man. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. That is awesome. And so, obviously, you probably loved Jackie Fargo. Can you remember some of your other favorites that you really liked? I uh, used to, uh, Phil Hickerson and Dennis Condry were heels. And I used to stand at the heel dressing room door and let them eat my popcorn. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Dennis Condry has always been a favorite of mine. Uh, oh, Tojo, Tojo Yamamoto. Uh, I remember Gypsy Joe from back in those days. And of course, I grew up later and Gypsy Joe became one of my bookers and one of them, one of my best friends. What an honor that was. And, uh, oh, no doubt. Yeah. From back in those days, I, I still remember Bobby Eaton when I guess when Bobby came through and yeah. uh, Tommy Rich. Yeah. Tommy Rich, Dr. D, David Schultz was there uh, at the time, Mr. Wrestling number two. I mean, they all were there back then, man. I mean, yeah, that's the great era, man. Yeah. It was, it was before Jerry Jarrett. It was before okay. Jeff. I remember the first night Jeff Jarrett wrestled. And, uh, you know, I was there for all that. As not, now, that was as a teenager when I would just go to Nashville and, uh, you know, just go to visit my cousin up there. We would always go to the matches. Yeah. Been going to the fairgrounds all my life, you know. That's amazing. That's I, one of my favorite places. I was so close to getting to work there, but never made it happen. Man, one of my favorite places. So tell me, what was your foot in the door? I mean, obviously, you've had a million interactions and family members close to wrestlers, but what was your official first foot in the door that literally got you to, to Robert and to train you? Okay, so my mom worked in Fayetteville at a convenience store, and there was this guy that worked on the outlaw circuit down in Athens, Alabama, called himself the Dirty Dutchman. Okay. I guess, yeah. he was, I guess he was copying Dutch Mantel. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, he came in with his gimmick on. He came in dressed with wrestling boots and his wrestling shirt that had his gimmick name on it or whatever. She said, are you a pro wrestler? And he said, yes, ma'am. And, and she said, I've got a son that is dying to get into pro wrestling business, has been dying, but can't figure out how to get in. So he wrote down his phone number and I called him the next day and he told me to be ready to go next Saturday night. And he would introduce me to the guy that would train me. And I went down and, you know, $500 down payment later, I was in the ring training with Robert Wallace. Okay. Yeah. And how, now, Robert obviously there were days, the stretching and stuff like that. Talk about that process, the training with him. Woo. He about killed me the first day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of Greco-Roman style stretching or anything like that, but he ran me till I puked. And then when I puked, he ran me some more and ran me some more. And I learned how, the main thing I learned was how to hit the ropes and how to hit the turnbuckles on that first day. Cause all I did was run for about two hours straight. <laughs> oh um, man. I would, I would, I would go up in a garbage can and then get, and get right back in the ring and do 30 crisscrosses and, you know, run 30, 30 times one way, 30 times the next, and then hit the turnbuckle 30 times each direction and then bounce up, bounce down like a crisscross. You know, you drop down, drop up, and, and keep running. I mean, I just ran. And uh, he said, well, he said, you did good. He said, I'll, I'll see you next Sunday at 6 o'clock. Next Sunday at 6 o'clock, I showed up, and he said, well, you're back. He said, I didn't think you'd be back after me running you like that, but, yeah, you're back. He said, now let's go in here and let's learn how to wrestle. So he went in there. That's when he started stretching me a little bit, showing me, you know, the arm bars and the 
leg locks and the, the, the camel clutches and all the sheep shit that he knew. Mm-hmm. And it showed me a few of the reversals and what to do. If I, it, the main thing he tried to teach me some of that shooting stuff was if you, a lot of the guys that were coming in back then, the green guys like me, the old guys weren't going to take to us. You know, right. they might try to they might try to test us to see if we can handle ourselves or whatever. So you know, he said it might not ever happen, but then it might happen your first match. You just never know. Yeah. So you got you got to know these things. So you know that lasted for about two weeks, and then. He said, uh, "He said, okay, I'm gonna grab you in a headlock. I want you to show me what you would do if you somebody grabbed you in a headlock." So I picked him up like a belly to back, and I started going back with him. He said, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" I went ahead and dropped him. Yeah. Went ahead and dropped him. I dropped him. I dropped him on his head. Mm-hmm. He, said, he said, "Okay." He said, uh, "I think it's time we smarten you up a little bit." He said, "Now, when you do that to somebody, you're supposed to get them so far back and then just let them go like this." And he took his son and he showed me how to do it with his son. Yeah. And he said, "Now do it to me," and I did it the right way. Robert said I was probably one of the easiest people that he ever tried to train because he only had to show me things one time and I got it. You know what now, I mean? Yeah. Did you come from an athletic background as far as high school? No, and stuff? no, not at all. No, no. You just took to wrestling I mean, easy, though. Yeah, because I've been doing it in the living room with my cousin. My whole <laughs> and there you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's where we all learn it. That's where we all learn it, or we think we learn it, you know. But right. yeah. And when I first learned that the arm drags, you know, we were helping each other with arm drags and hip tosses and whatnot, I was like, oh, my God, really? This is so easy. <laughs> I never knew I never knew it was a work, you know what I mean? Yeah. I thought yeah. the arm drags and the hip tosses and shit were real. Or shoots, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. found yeah. out it was all work. I was, I was happy. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's that's the best place to learn is in the living room. Me and me and Jimmy learned uh, all our stuff in the living room. So <laughs> yeah, we move all the furniture, move all the furniture aside, and pretend like the wall is a rope. Come back. Yeah, yep. everybody does it. Right. That's it. That's it. So, Chris, what was your what was your like first like real match? And like, what was it with a certain promotion, or was it like a small it was promotion? Athens, Athens, Alabama, working for Alvin Wallace. Uh, June the 14th, 1990. Oh, wow. I wrestled, I wrestled a guy named the Red Shadow, and I still remember the match. You know, he used a gimmick uh, where he took a gimmick and put it in his elbow pad and came off the second rope or the top rope, whatever, and came down with a loaded gimmick in his elbow pad, pinned me, dragged me over to the rope, put his feet on the rope, one, two, three. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, man, that's amazing. The funny thing about that match was I I went out wrestling barefoot because back then you either had to have a pair of boots, a pair of wrestling boots, or you had to wrestle barefoot. Yeah. So I went out on first first match. I wrestled barefoot. By by week number two, there was a guy in the dressing room that had a pair of boots for sale for fifty bucks, and they were ugly. (laughs) They were wore out. They were beat up, but at least they were something on my feet. Yeah. And I bought I bought those pair of boots for fifty bucks, and you know just went on upgrading after them. As you went, now talk about how you know early on George Weingroff's place in your life. Okay. Yeah, George Weingroff, man, he's the one that named me Chris Kern. Okay. First and and foremost, because I was using my real name, Cruz. Cruising Chris Price is what I was going by. Chris it's not Price bad. Not bad. Yeah. Yeah, that's all I ever knew. As a teenager, that's all I did was cruise around town, you know? So, <laughs> well, hey. Yeah. Uh, cruising Chris Price. But uh, a guy here in Fayetteville named Big Mike Norman, I rolled up on him on a, at a gas station one day. And, man, I'd been trying to get in the business. And every time I saw Big Mike, I knew he was a referee. 
I said, man, I want to get trained. He said, I ain't nobody training right now. I ain't nobody training. He kayfabed me for years, man. Yeah. He wouldn't tell me yeah. nobody knew where to go. He honored the business by keeping kayfabe. He wouldn't tell me nothing. Mm-hmm. So I saw him at a gas station after I got smart, and I walked up to him. I said, hey, man, I'm smart. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you don't have to kayfabe me no more. He said, oh, yeah. Well, hell, boy, who trained you? I said, Robert Wallace. Oh, Robert, that man Athens. I said, yeah. Well, I tell you what, how long have you been in? I said, oh, about six months. I've been, I've been doing nothing but down there, you know, $5 and a hot dog. Yeah. I'd like to go to, I'd like to go to some other places. Well, yeah. How about Thursday night? You just get in the truck and ride with me and we'll go to Shelbyville and I'll start taking you to places on Friday night and Saturday night. And we got some Sunday shows we can do and you can just start riding with me. I said, hell yeah. <laughs> so I started riding with Big Mike. I went to the first show I went to with him was in Shelbyville, Tennessee, uh-huh. and and George Weindroff was the booker. And yeah. I didn't know who. I mean, I hate to say it, but I didn't know who George was. Sure, you know what I mean. I didn't know who Saul Weindroff was. The Germans didn't know. Oh, yeah. yeah. That part of Nashville was before my time. You know yeah. what I mean? Right. Right. So anyway, introduced me to him. He was doing the sheet gimmick, and he said, "What What do you wrestle as?" I said, "Chris Cruz and Chris Price." He said, "I don't like that name." <laughs> he said, "You kind of look like Steve Kern to me, so we're going to call you Chris Kern, but we're going to spell it different so Steve can't get pissed off at us." Yeah. Okay. I said, okay whatever, whatever you want to do, you know, yeah. is, I don't care what you call me as long as you book me. Well, he gave me a tryout match, and I did pretty good. He welcomed me back the next Thursday, and. Uh, I kept going with a guy named Tommy Reed and Sammy Manier on Friday and Saturday nights in like Tullahoma or Lewisburg, and then got hooked up with Freddie Morton in Columbia at the Grand Slam, and then uh, we did some stuff on Sundays. We'd either go down to Alabama, Iuka, Mississippi, or wherever wherever we could wrestle, you know, down in Albertville, Boaz, Alabama. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I just started riding with Big Mike, you know, and... I, I owe most of my career to Big Mike because he would he would smarten me up about how to be a heel because when I got booked around here, everybody wanted to use me as a heel. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, he started smarting me up on how to be a heel, what to do, what not to do, when to do it, when not to do it, how to do it, what to say, what not to say, you know. Not, don't ever cuss the people. Don't ever right. cuss them. You can get more heat by calling them hillbillies and rednecks and yeah, toothless yeah. wonders. Toothless wonders. You can get more heat by doing that than you can by calling them mother and some bitches. You know. Right. Right. Sure. Yeah. And, and he was right. You know, all I do is just look at him and tell him to stop booing me, and he <laughs> raise up the whole crowd. Yeah. And I, I, I owe most of my most of my early career to Big Mike. If it, Big Mike hadn't took me out with him, I don't know how far I might have went. You know what I mean? I might not have went nowhere. I mean, I really didn't go anywhere, but. I might not have got to enjoy as much as I did if it hadn't been for Big Mike. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. So tell us, it looks like uh, maybe, is it 1993 or something, you worked in WCW some? I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Went down there. First time I went was with Jason Gennetti. He took me down there the first time. And then I uh, I got, after that little tour, I went down with uh, Chris Champion and J.D. Wolf. Yeah. <laughs> Can I tell you a story? Please. Oh, God, my, please do. My job, my job while I was riding with Chris, Chris was doing the Yoshi Kwan gimmick, and uh, J.D. Wolf was the driver. Chris would sit in the front seat, and, of course, I was in the back seat. My job on the road riding with Chris Champion was just to simply keep him rolled up. 
<laughs> he, he gave me the name, a pack of papers, and I rolled them up, and we smoked them. And I kept, kept him high all the way to Atlanta and all the way back to Tennessee, you know? Yeah. yeah. So we probably go through an ounce each time we went down there. Wow. And, and hey, it was great, though, man. I got to smoke with Booker T. We sat in Booker T's red Cadillac and got high with him. And <laughs> I got <laughs> I got to I got to drink with uh Harley Race at the Marriott bar, sitting right beside Harley Race. I got to drink with Harley and Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton and it's amazing how when those guys get a little tipsy or whatever, they really don't care whether you're a job or as long as you're one of the boys, they'll talk to you. They'll talk to you. One of the brotherhood. Not, yeah. 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 You know, they're not protecting their ego if they're in the bar. You know what I mean? If they're in right. the dressing room, they're kind of protecting their ego, and they don't want any of the bookers or whatever to see them talking to us or whatever. But I think if they're in the bar, it's a looser setting, and they can free up. And talking to Holy Race, man, golly, talking about one guy who's really hard to understand. When <laughs> That's really good, Chris. That's, That's pretty good. good. Yeah. When really had, good. They had 12 or 14 Jack Daniels. You know, yeah. on the yeah. dollars. Yeah. Yeah. But I had a good thing. Man, that's. In, tw- in 12 or 14 Jack Daniels and about three packs of cigarettes, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> now, okay. So you're sitting beside, arguably, and you didn't put him on your list, but I think on anybody's list, Harley Race could be on there, no problem. But you're sitting beside, arguably, one of the greatest world champions of all time. Order, yeah. is there anything you pulled from him as far as like just listening to him talk? I mean, no, because I mean, I listened to him, but he was talking to Arn and Bobby and Chris, and, and mainly I was listening. I, sure. I got to listen, you know what yeah, I mean? Of course. And he would look at me every once in a while and say, That's what I'm talking about, you know? And yeah, 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 yes, sir, yes, sir, I'm listening. <laughs> and then uh, I got to do another tour with. Chris and JD and I was working some of the guys that he was managing called the Colossal Kongs. Oh yeah. Yeah. Five hundred pounds a piece guys and I just got shit canned out. And when I got shit canned out, Harley picked me up and he said, Eat the post, kid. (laughs) (laughs) And I went down and that that was my job and I did that match. See WCW, you got one match. It's the same match night after night after night after night, town after town after town after town. You don't yeah. do nothing different. Yeah. You got the same with them. We had the same minute and a half, and it was the same spot with different different people. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it was night after night after night, and and like I'd have different partners. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you know, if they shit can me, they do the finish on him, or if they shit can him, they do the finish on me. Sure. And you do the same match night after night after night for the whole tour. That's the yeah. way it went with the Nancy Boys. That's the way it went with the Colossal Cones. That's the way it went with the Hollywood Blondes. Yeah. You know, everybody, everybody I worked down there, you do one match, one certain match, and whatever match you do in that town, that's the same match you do town after town after town. You don't change it. Right. Okay. Did you work as Chris Kern there as well? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure did. Yeah. Because we we had Gator McAllister on, and he was telling a lot of these similar stories, man. It's crazy. Did you all run into each other at all down there? Not that I I remember. 
Yeah, yeah. He was going by Gary McAllister because they didn't want to use Gator because of Steve Kern, which turns into your name. It's like a little <laughs> circle there. It's kind of crazy because yeah. yeah. he was using that Skinner gimmick and then he came to WCW and Steve was going to be like their version of Jake the Snake. And then long story short, that didn't happen. And so it's just funny how little small little world <laughs> everything is, you yeah. know, so yeah. that's cool, yeah. man. Yeah. Well, my run didn't last long with WCW. They told me to lose weight and gain muscle. Oh, and if I okay. Need, if I needed help with that, there's some guys back there in the back that Jody Hamilton said this to me. He said, you need to lose weight and gain muscle. And if you need some help with that, there's some guys back there in the back that's got some stuff in their bags that'll help you out. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And exactly what I'm saying. And I didn't want to go that route. You know what I mean? I didn't want to I didn't want to get on the gas. You know what I mean? Understand. Understand. Yeah. You so know I came home and got fat and stayed on the Indies. Well, hey, I mean, you know, that's a choice to make. And I mean, honestly, that that is something that every wrestler, I think, probably has dealt with in their career is do I choose to go that route or do I stay the way that I am a more natural style? And you could always tell the gassed up dudes versus the guys that weren't. But there were some guys that could do it naturally and didn't need that assistance. But what you're saying is you kind of made that choice. It's like, look, I, I don't want to go that route. I don't want to use something in in that case steroids to make myself look better and but i mean do you feel like let's just ask this question since we're talking do you feel like if you would have made that choice do you regret not going that direction absolutely yeah because if i had if i had have done that instead of coming home and getting married getting fat yeah i probably i probably would have made it yeah yeah i mean because that's a big choice man I think I had what it takes. You know what I mean? I think I had what it takes to make it in the business. I had the passion for it. I had the drive. I had the desire. I had the ability. I had the want it, you know? And there's no reason why I couldn't have made it if I had got on the gas. I just chose not to, you know? Yeah, yeah. Woulda, coulda, shoulda, right? That's all those there, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So our most recent guest, Eron Hatchett, was on the show, and he was talking about that his very first match was with you. And honestly, that remained one of his all-time favorite matches that he's ever had. You and Jamie Dundee were essentially his two favorite matches. But honestly, that was his very first match. Can you talk a little bit about, do you remember working, Eron? What an honor. When I listened to that, what an honor that was for me to listen to him say that. And I do remember Eron very, very fondly, you know what I mean? And then, uh, as y'all say, he had to take that break. Yeah, right. And, and couldn't believe it, you know what I mean? But right. yeah, it, it is what it was. But no, I don't remember being his first match. I don't really remember the match or where it was. But what an honor it was to listen to him say that and to know that I'm one of his favorite workers, man. That's that humbles you when you hear people say stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool, man. That's cool. Very humble and very proud. And, and Eron's a good guy. He was always one of the friendliest guys in the dressing rooms. And I, I, I'll never have anything bad to say about Eron Hatchet. Never. Yeah. I don't think anybody honestly can, if they are, that's their problem. It's not, they've got a problem. That's right. Yeah. He don't have yeah. a problem. They've got right. a problem. Right. Yeah. Right. 
He was a great interview, just like this one's going great too. We're enjoying this, man. So obviously, you know, you, you're you're going on in your career. You said you had your little run in WCW, which is amazing. So early on in your career, especially now, you end up meeting up with a guy named Lonnie Lane. Man, tell us a little bit about that. Carl Houston. Ooh, man. <laughs> okay, so we're in the dressing room one night in Shelbyville, and I don't really have a gimmick. I'm just doing the gimmick, Chris Kern. You know what yeah, I mean? I don't really right. have anything. I've got the ugliest tights in the world, neon green and neon orange. He come to me and he said, hey, I've been talking to Gypsy Joe. I've got an idea. He said, I want to use you to do it. He said, uh, I want to do a gimmick called the Bad Boys, where we put on like some blue jeans and pants and I'll paint them up. We'll put the Tasmanian devil on the back of our jackets and we'll come out to the theme from cops and we'll call ourselves the Bad Boys. Yeah. And I was like, Okay, that's better than what I'm doing now. <laughs> and, and Joe said, uh, Joe said he would put us over and make us a good heel tag team, and and we'll try it and see what happens. I said, okay, yeah, let's do it. So he got me a denim jacket, painted tabs on the back of it. I got me some blue jean short, uh, blue jean pants, and he cut them up and put holes in them and painted chains on them. And the next, I, I guess, the next week we went out to the theme music from Cops and. The fans took to it, and we started getting heat, and Joe booked us against some heat factory baby faces, and uh, we eat them up, spit them out, and shoot them up, and week after week after week, and Joe just kept putting us over and putting belts on us, and there in Shelbyville, and then we started wrestling around in Columbia, and, you know, started touring with, you know, just the local little circuit here, Columbia, Lewisburg, Tullahoma, Winchester, wherever. Yeah. And yeah, we did that little run probably for about two years. And then uh, Lonnie got tied up up in uh, Dixon. He started running a show at a bar in Dixon and he didn't want to travel anymore. And then the next thing I know, he's out of the business. Yeah, maybe he had a motorcycle wreck or something, I think. I think he had a motorcycle wreck and yeah. messed him up pretty good and he got out of the business. And I guess his over the years, his health got worse and worse and worse. And the next thing I knew, he, he had passed away. Man, man, that's a shame. But it, was it's... Great, it was great while it lasted. And one of the most, one of, I'm going to be honest, the most heat I ever got was with Lonnie. Now, I got a lot of heat. I got a lot of heat with Hot Rod, but we did this gimmick here in Fayetteville. We were running at a taxi stand, and I've got this in my notes that I wanted to talk about. Please, yeah. It's a little silly. Do y'all remember a guy named Rex Locke? I remember the him name. And, yeah. him, and Mark Dunham, him and Mark Dunham did the Backwoods Brawlers. Okay. Anyway, one, one night it's the Bad Boys against the Backwoods Brawlers. Rex's hometown is Fayetteville, Tennessee. My hometown is Fayetteville, Tennessee. We're wrestling at a cab stand in Fayetteville, Tennessee. Yeah. I'm a heel, but Rex is the babyface. Rex's whole family is there. and He's got 40 or 50 people in his family there. His brother owns the cab stand. His name is Eddie Vaughn. They didn't have the same last name, but they were half brothers or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Eddie Vaughn had a prosthetic leg. So one night, Lonnie gets the big idea that we're going to do a big schmoz at the end, go out and do a run-in on their match. And Eddie's going to jump in the ring, and we're going to take his prosthetic leg off of him and beat him up with his own leg. Oh, man. <laughs> wow. And we did, and we took the nuts or the bolts or whatever that were in the leg, and we, we gigged him, and Lonnie gigged him, and, man, blood was flowing like wine, brother. You talking about <laughs> – there was plenty 
There was probably 250 or 300 people there, and half of them were losing their mind. They were going crazy. There was so much heat, we couldn't even hardly get out of the wrestling ring. But when we did get out of the ring, there was a girl, which was Rex's sister, that took a swing at Lonnie with the chair and hit him in the top of the head with a chair. Mm. He jerked the chair out of her hand, turned around and smacked her right in the face with it. Oh, my gosh. So now, knives are popping out, guns are popping out. And I'm telling Lonnie, come on, man, let's go, let's go, get back in the dressing room. And he's like, Sam, come on, <laughs> come on, you're going to get killed if you don't come on. <laughs> so I pushed him back in the dressing room. We got back there, and we had to sit back there for 45 minutes or an hour before we could ever leave because nobody was leaving. Yeah. None of the fans were leaving. They wanted to stay to see us get stuck. Well, they finally called the police, and the police told everybody they had to leave. Once everybody left, then we were able to leave. But one, that was that was probably the hottest night I've had in my whole career. <laughs> I'd say, man. wow, dude, yeah. man. Tell us a little bit about working with Pork Chop Cash. Okay, so remember me telling you about Mississippi going down mm-hmm. there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So one of the things I did was I got down there, and uh, Pork Chop Cash was in Iuka, Mississippi, working for Lee Hickerson. And I went down there for the first time, had to buy my Mississippi license or whatever. It was $10 for my license, but they promised to give it back to me in my envelope, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, a guy named Pork Chop Cash was there. They said, we're going to put you in Pork Chop Cash tonight. He had the Bruce Brothers um, briefcase that he had when he was with his old partner or whatever. Mm-hmm. He said, I ain't never had a white bruise brother before, but you're going to be my first white bruise brother. And I said, okay, <laughs> whatever you want me to do, man, I'll do it. Anyway, but they had broke up and he needed a partner. So I was there and I only did it with him maybe one or two times, right? And mm-hmm. did it down in Iamuca, Mississippi. And it was great. Good crowd, 150, 200 people, lively. We were the main event. Shine, heat, come back, finish, you know? basic wrestling match on all on, on the matches and then uh, i didn't go down to mississippi anymore uh but i got the idea one night i guess i can't remember what year it was maybe 94 late 94 early 95 tommy higgy looks at me and he says me and breeze are getting ready to bump ourselves down off the card this happened in lewisburg at the national guard armor he sat me down and he said i'm getting ready to take me and breathe down off the card. I feel like we've done as much as we can do with yeah. the wild boy and the Mortons. And I'm fixing to take us down the notch, but I'm going to put, I'm going to find a heel tag team to come up and be the new top tag team. And wow. I'd like for you to be, he said, I'd like for you to be part of it. Yeah. I need you to, I need you to find you a partner, somebody that you can trust, somebody that's good, somebody that's not, you know, too smart to the business but somebody you can teach i said okay well it just so happens that night that hot rod biggs was in the dressing room for the first time and he yeah. wasn't working but he was there he had his arm in a sling i guess he had heard it in nashville working in nashville had his arm in a sling with well, the finish that i had i wanted to use some spray like some aerosol spray you know the febreze stuff kind of yeah. I wanted to spray it. I wanted to spray it in the guy's face for the finish. Well, he had his arm in the swing. I asked Tommy, I said, well, can I take him as, out as my manager? Because Marcus Woodrow III didn't show up. I said, can I take him out as my manager? And he said, yeah, I don't care. So Hot Rod went out with me. I said, just follow me. Just do what I tell you to do and just follow me. He said, okay. Because Rod hadn't been in the business long. Yeah. And uh, 
I said, hold this can, and when I ask you for it, I'll say Iggy, and 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 you'll hand me the can. Okay, so we got to the finish. I said Iggy. He gave me the can. We did the finish. But while we were out there, I was watching him. Like, I'd get the rest hold on the kid, and I was watching Rod, and he was mingling with the crowd the whole time being a heel. Mm-hmm. And just natural, man, just natural getting heat with the marks. <laughs> so... After we got through the match or whatever, I went back to Tommy and I said, Tommy, that guy that went out there with me tonight, that's who I want to be my partner. He said, really? I said, yeah, really. I think he's got what it takes. I mean, he, did you watch him while he was working? He said, no, I didn't watch it. I said, he was out there working those people the whole time. I said, there wasn't a dead moment. He didn't let it die, not at all. So that's who I want to be my partner. I said, we'll get us some penguin suits, some bow ties some white shirts and some jackets and we'll we'll do a, like a gimmick called the Bruise brothers yeah and tommy said okay i said i'll call pork chop cash and get permission and i call i had big mike to call pork chop i had permission and he said he didn't care he wasn't doing the gimmick anymore so the following saturday night man lewisburg tennessee uh the Bruise brothers were born man that's and, awesome that's awesome. Yeah. First of all, let's stop real quick. You are talking about taking, and, and I know most of our listeners are going to say, okay, that's cool, but this is epic, man. You guys were anointed the spot of the devils. I mean, the, the longtime heels, man, the, the heels. If you think heels in that scene, you think the devils, and you took their spots. That's huge. First of all, that's an honor. You know what I'm saying? And then obviously yeah. getting with Rod and, and, and it naturally becoming this tag team, that's a whole other, you know, it's it's like epic moment after epic moment. You know what I mean? I could not believe it when Tommy sat me down and was telling me this, man. I was just humbled. You know what I mean? I was like, I was amazed and I was humbled. And uh, what an honor it was for Tommy to sit me down, you know what I mean? And say, I'm passing the torch to you. Yeah. And I want you to to do it. Man, there was no better feeling in the world. So I knew I had to take the ball and run with it. And I think the Bruce Brothers did a pretty good job. Yeah, you did. Yeah. They, they, put us with, they put us with the Morton boys and they put us with the Wild Boys and they put us with the Wild Boys and Gary Scott and uh, Gary, I'm sorry, Gary Valiant. Uh, and it was great. It was great, man. I loved every minute of it. Now, did you, I mean, out of all those guys, you talk about working the Mortons and the Wild Boys. Ben Jordan's brought this up before. Shane's brought this up before. There were elements of the Mortons that took a little bit from the Wild Boys, and it was like a natural, not rivalry, but also it it was a little bit of a rivalry as far as the better babyface tag team. Can you compare working the Mortons and the Wild Boys at all? What were their differences? What were their similarities? Man, that's a good question. Um, the Wild Boys were more over with the ladies, okay. I think. Okay. And I don't know if the Mortons ever had ladies giving them roses on the way to the ring. Gotcha. But that okay. happened, happened quite often with the Wild Boys. The girls would give the Wild Boys roses quite often. Gotcha. And I don't remember that happening with the, with the Mortons. Uh, work quality... Man, uh, I trained I trained Shane because Freddie wouldn't train him. He was too mm-hmm. little, and Shane wouldn't. You know, Shane came to me and wanted me to train him, so I trained him, and then he trained Steve. And I don't, I can't compare the two as far as uh, work quality because I mean it was shine heat comeback finish match after match after match. Sure, yeah, yeah. 
but as far as getting over, I, I think the Wild Boys might have been just a little bit, you know, more handsome and, you know, just, just, <laughs> no, it. Seriously, no I get it. I mean, I get it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I love Shane. I love Shane and I love Steve. And and they were over. They yeah. were over on Rover, but it, I have to lean toward the Wild Boys a little bit. Yeah, I feel like the Wild Boys, I mean, I love PG thirteen. We're gonna talk about them in a minute and I don't wanna jump the gun on that. But you know, I, I feel like the Wild Boys deserve to run, man. I do. I feel like in especially in Memphis, I don't know what the booking situation was there. I know Ben did a lot of T V, but man, I feel like the Wild Boys deserved to run that, you know. I would have loved to have seen them get a little more of a run, especially in Memphis, to see what they could have done, man. Can, and then I know the PG kind of had the spot, and it was a little, it was a little tough to take that spot once they were in it. But man, I, I really feel like the. And again, I'm the world's biggest PG thirteen fan, but I would have loved to have seen what the Wild Boys could have done in that same spot. Can I can I interject just a little bit? Uh, Please, just yeah. by knowing it's your show, just brother. By knowing, just by knowing Ben <laughs> and knowing Steve. I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure that they might have been willing to have hit the road at that time. Gotcha. Okay. Maybe they could have had that spot. You know, maybe they could have had a spot down there. Gotcha. But from okay. what from what I remember about them in the dressing room, like dressing rooms were separated, but. I mean, I, I hung out with them in the back or whatever, and they would say stuff like, man, I don't want to go on the road. I don't want to, you know, I just want to stay local and stuff like that. I don't think they really wanted to travel like yeah, yeah. the Memphis circuit. Maybe, maybe and that makes wrong, sense. That's, that's kind of what I remember. You know what I mean? They wanted yeah. to stay local. They yeah. were over where they were at. They were making money. Yeah. Why mess it up? Yeah, you know, and that's they, a good point. Their gimmick table was selling out night after night after night. So why, if you're making a few hundred dollars in gimmicks, why mess it up? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Now that's a great point and a great way to look at it because, you know, I mean, Ben had been doing the underneath stuff in WWF and then he wins the global lightweight title. So he had his little bitty run, but he did say that comparing the level of guys that he got to work as an underneath guy versus the tit for tat, the back and forth matches with the devils and you guys and stuff like that. He liked he that better. Good. He got more he out of it. Yeah. 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 He, Me too. Yeah, the and then time that, that I was sitting in WCW doing enhancement work, man, I kind of hated it. You know what I mean? I mean, gotcha. I was getting paid. Right. I was making money, but I kind of hated it. And right, because right. I couldn't do what I wanted to do. I was limited to what I could do. Like it was match after match after match, time after time after time. It was the same old shit, beat and repeat. Yeah. There was no, <laughs> there was no freedom to do what you wanted to do. You yeah. know, and I'm a walk, I'm a walker talker. You know, right. I'm not a sit in the back and call it kind of guy. I I'm, I'm I feel the people. I feel the energy. And if I can't work that way, I can't work. You know, yeah. it's just how I am. And that's probably why. And that's the main reason why I'm not in the business now is I hate what the business became. Right. Uh, you know, a guy coming up to you 45 minutes before the show talking about, hey, what are we going to do? Right. We're going right. to we're going we're gonna to work. That's what we're going to yeah. do. You're going <laughs> to I'm going to lead the match and you're going to follow. Right. You're going to keep your ears open. <laughs> well, what, what spots are we going to do? We're going to do the finish. That's the spot we're going to do. Yeah. I'm going to, you can put my feet on the ropes. One, two, three. That's the finish. <laughs> we're not going to, we're not going to call anything else. Yeah. We're going to call it in the ring. Yeah. They yeah, were yeah. lost. Man. They were lost. They didn't know yeah. how to do it. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's it hilarious. Ruined their whole day. It would ruin their whole day. And right. I'd get them in the ring, and we'd, we'd, we'd have that kind of match, and the crowd would bite, man. They'd be standing, they'd be standing and cheering or standing and booing every time. Yeah. And I'd come back and say, now that's how you wrestle. Yeah. But the yeah. following week, I'd see them working somebody else, and they'd be talking for an hour and a half before the show about each spot they were going to do. Yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, this is speaking from an outsider perspective here. Like that, I've never been in the ring or anything like that. But I always feel like sometimes when the crowd's dead in a match where you've got everything planned out, it's hard to reverse course. But if you got if you're just working it as working the crowd as it goes, and if you if you don't have it all scripted out, you can change it up and do something more exciting or get the crowd back into it. You know, something quite a bit easier. Okay, so now that you said that, let me say this. There's a guy on the indie circuit right now. His name is uh, Cousin Condry. Love Cousin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so last time I talked to him, I told him, look, I love your shit. I think you're the best thing on the circuit right now. Okay, but listen, these spots that you're doing, they look great. But I want to know, just man to man, you tell me whether you can or whether you can't. If you're out there and you call every spot, for your match if you start hearing crickets are you able to change it up and start calling walking and talking mm-hmm. he said yes sir he said my my daddy his daddy's lee condry oh yeah how long lee yeah my, my daddy taught me how to walk and talk before i ever started calling spots yeah so if ever i'm in a situation where whatever we're doing don't work then i can start walking and talking and get the crowd back i said why can't everybody be like that Mm. Right, right. Why, if, it, if it could be that way, that would be great. Wrestling yeah. would still be great. Right. But a lot of guys can't work like that. I'm yeah. not going to mention any names, but I work with some at Money Mark Productions, you know, that can't work that way. Yeah. Everything's got to be everything's got to be spotted out. And if they mess up a spot, they just try it again. Yeah. When and do you think, think that change happened? When do you think that change okay, happened? So, Here's here's my synopsis of it. It started happening when PS3 and PS games came out, and they, oh. they could play they could play video games at home, and yeah. they would sit at home all week and play video games and say, "Hey, why don't we do this in our match Saturday night?" Right. So they right. they would spot out their matches based on what they were doing on their PS3s and PS4s or whatever. That's just that is, my belief. Yeah. That you're on to something, I think, Chris. I really do because I I feel like that it is a very video game. You know, Wolfie compares it to an action movie scene where it's like you do this, I do this, but if there's not really a story in that fight, it's literally just playing out an action game. But I think you might be onto something bigger than that, actually. I re- because there's no. I mean, I don't know if you ever played a uh, wrestling video game, but I'll tell you this. There's I'll no... Let my son play them all. Yeah. Well, there's no real story. It, there's no psychology into those matches. It's just you're trying to beat the guy that's uh, next to you or on the computer or whatever. Yeah. There's no psychology, and it's just who does the better moves. And you, I think you're onto something. That might be the, the statement of I, the show right there, Chris. <laughs> I, think I, I think I really am onto something because my son had all those games, and he could mm-hmm. not be the computer couldn't beat him yeah he was great he was great at it yeah and when he started trying to wrestle which he no longer does because he got hurt anyway uh that's that's another story i'll tell it later uh 
I think that's where he got a lot of his ideas. Once he got into business, he wanted to be a spot monkey like that, and I didn't gotcha. allow it. I mean, gotcha. I'm not going to train you if you're going to be a spot monkey. You can either yeah. learn how to walk and talk, or you, you're not getting into business. Yeah. I tell you what, what's funny is I managed Cousin Condry when he was, we were working for Mike Porter and he was 14 years old and I had no idea the kid was 14. I thought he looked young, but heck, they all looked young to me at that time. And that kid was flying all over the place doing those crazy, you know, it's like the, I don't know, it's like a barrel roll into the guy in the tournament. He was doing really cool original stuff, but you know, yeah. he wasn't quite there mentally with it all yet. But man, I tell you what, I was impressed when he was 14 and and I, I'm, I'm happy. I'm a big Cousin Condry fan i'm happy he's doing well and i'm happy to hear that he's getting your thumbs up too because like i said i'm a big yeah. fan of outlaw lee condry too he's a great guy it helped me I out a lot too you know? i think any of the guys that are around on the indie circuit right now will make it he'll be the one he'll be the one that goes to the dance yeah, I hope so too. And I, I feel big. We, he's a former guest. We had him on the show a few months ago and, and really great conversation with him and enjoyed that a lot. He's respectful too. That's what I like about him. He is. You know I mean? Yeah, he absolutely is. He called me, sir. And I was like, no, it ain't how it works. But okay. A lot of these guys, they just don't have the respect that they should because they haven't been taught. Whoever trained right. them didn't train them right. Yeah. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. So to kind of go back to your story, you know, you're talking about, you know, we took the devil spots and the Bruce Brothers and that. You did end up going into a tag team with Blackie West. Talk a little bit about him and, and that. Man, me and Blackie. You know, it seems like all my tag team partners, are, are, except Rod, are dead now. <laughs> Man. That's kind, of, that's kind of scary. But uh, <laughs> Blackie was cool. Blackie was uh, great. He, this idea wasn't mine. It was his idea. The, the Southern Outlaws. He wanted to put on leather vests and put on a rebel hat and carry a rebel flag to the ring and just be Leonard Skinner and music and just be strong heels, right? And yeah. we were working working mainly for uh, Petersburg, which was Steve and Randall. Uh, we did Shelbyville and Columbia, Lewisburg, you know, just the same old circuit. Yeah, but yeah, the Southern Outlaws, man, it was a good, strong tag team. Uh, kind of like a, the Rebel gimmick, but you're also kind of Southern rocking okay. tag team, you know. Corey Williams, it was Corey Williams and Ashley Hudson before Corey Williams and Ashley Hudson. There we you were go. Doing it, we yeah. did it first. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. They got, they got the gimmick with Bert, and they they started doing it in Nashville. We did it in the, the smaller towns. We did it first. Yeah, so basically the same gimmick. That's cool. Yeah. And, you know, it was, it was a good tag team. It was a real good tag team. And Blackie became a great friend of mine. We hung out daily. It wasn't mm -hmm. once a week or once every, you know, twice a week. We hung out daily. We both, I, I lived in Shelbyville at the time, and so did he. And uh, I was managing a rent-to-own store. And he and Gypsy Joe would come into my rent-to-own my rent store, and they would hang out all day long. <laughs> You know, and we talked about wrestling all day long. And then another Man. one that's passed away worked for me. His name was Shane Rhodes. Shane Rhodes worked for me at the rent to own store, and uh, he passed away as well. Yeah, Man. he's a good guy. That's right. It's the talk of Middle Tennessee, the channel you love to hate and the channel you hate to love. It's Brian Turner from Brian Turner's VHS Rehab. And if you're looking for matches from Wolfie D to Jerry Lawler to Dusty Rhodes and the team that put a pimp before your eyes and a goatee between your thighs, Booty Call and Athena, go to LostWrestling.com. See, I made it easy for you. Brian Turner's VHS Rehab. Booyah. 
Hey everyone, this is Shane from Insane Shane's World. I release wrestling figures of enhancement talent, mid-card wrestlers, and wrestlers that you never thought would have a figure available. So if you're interested in adding a really cool and rare figure to your collection, then don't hesitate to contact me at shamtheman73 at gmail.com. That's S-H-A-M, the man, 73 at gmail.com. You can also join my Facebook group. Just search Insane Shane's World. Well, you know, this is leading you in, and you're one of the only actually recognized third member. There's a couple third members of this tag team, but very few. And one of them is Frog, and he was put with them in WCW, and that was kind of a situation that WCW put him with him. But you're one of the only official officially recognized members of PG-13 when you were doing Lucky 13. Can you talk a little bit about how that got to that? Ooh, okay. Yeah. Uh, took a ride one night with Big Mike up to the fairgrounds in Nashville, went in the back with him, and Reno Riggins was there, and he asked me if I brought my stuff. And I said, yeah, of course. And he needed somebody on the card. So I just wrestled as Chris Kern. It was a dark match. And they, they were doing TV, but it was a dark match. Mm-hmm. And I guess maybe Dutch Mantel saw something in me. I don't know. But next thing I knew, the following week, Chris Champion came to me. He said, Kern, they're fixing to put a gimmick on you. I said, what kind of gimmick? He said, a clown gimmick. Do you want to do a clown gimmick? I said, a clown gimmick? He said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he said you're going to be with PG-13, their top heel tag team. You're going to go out and you're going to be with PG-13 as their manager, valet, friend, buddy, whatever. Yeah. I said, yeah, sure. In that case, <laughs> yeah. Why not? Because <laughs> were you thinking doink at first or something to that effect? Were you thinking like, yeah, oh, man. I, didn't, I yeah. didn't know what it was going to be. I thought they were going to make an idiot out of me. You know what I mean? I, sure. I, I didn't know. You know what I mean? Until they told me I was going to be with Jamie and Wolfie. And when they said I was going to be with Jamie and Wolfie, then I knew I was going to be taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, yeah, sure. So Chris said, well, come on back here. I, I've already got the paint. I've already got the shit that we need. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put your face on. I said, okay. And he drew me up. Uh, he drew the, the face up as John Wayne Gacy, just different colors. Yeah. And yeah. put a 13, put a 13 in the center of my forehead. And the first night I, first night I did it, man, it was great. I mean, it was Dutch Mantel's idea and Chris Champion's, uh, makeup design and Chris Champion named me Lucky 13. Yeah, which Chris actually put PG together, too, so it even made more sense that he put you with, you know what I'm saying, like he helped you be with them, so. Yeah, yeah, and it was great. I didn't travel very much with them, but I was on each one of those TV tapings with them, and I guess I probably did it six or seven times, maybe eight, something like that, before I guess they decided to, to jump ship from NWA, I mean, not NWA, but the main event thing for Reno, they decided to jump ship and go back with Burt. Yeah. And, you know, and then it was over. And then I brought Lucky 13 back on the Indies here uh, to Lewisburg, Shelbyville, Tullahoma. And to be honest, I made more money with that gimmick than any other thing that I've ever done in my whole wrestling career. Because, uh, to be honest with you, there was a point in time that I had taken some time off. Yeah. And became a Christian. 
Yeah. And you know what they say is you can't have any other gods other than you know me. He's a jealous god, so he put all other gods behind. So I had actually quit wrestling for a year, maybe a year and a half, something like that. But I had prayed that God give me some kind of way that I can still wrestle and do do his good. You know what I mean? So I did that thing with Jamie and Whoopi and it came to me. I realized that uh, this would be a good way to say now Lucky's going to be a baby face and be the Christian wrestling clown. Okay. Yeah. And, all right. So I continued to do the gimmick around here and I would go to the picture table and I would have like a lucky bucket and I carried my lucky bucket everywhere I went. It was full of candy. And mm-hmm. I would have the ring announcer to say that any kid that wants free candy, come on down to the picture table, and Lucky 13 is going to give away free candy to all the children. Yeah. Well, that worked like a charm. All the kids came. And I gave them all candy, just as I said I would. Emptied out the bucket. Gave them all candy. But I would find one or two kids, and I would say, hey, listen, where's your mom and daddy sitting? And they would point to where their mom and daddy were, and I would point with them. And I'd say, listen, I want you to do something for me. Go tell your mom and dad that you would really like to go to church on Sunday. You tell them Lucky 13 wants you to go to church on Sunday, and if they don't want to take you to church, then have a church bus come pick you up. And then I want you to come back here next week and tell Lucky 13 what you learned about a man named Jesus Christ. Oh, wow, man. And I don't know if any kids ever got saved, you know what I mean? But I did that for quite a while, man. I did that for several months. Of, of teaching kids about going to church and how important it is that you go to church and learn about Jesus Christ. Yeah. And um, I believe that's why I made a lot of money with that gimmick. I believe because I was blessing children with his name, he was blessing me financially. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would wrestle Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, sometimes on Sunday, and I would make $300 a night pretty easy just selling gimmicks. So wow. $900, $900 a week back in 1999, 2000. Yeah. That's a, that's a chunk of change, man. Yeah. No doubt. It's such a awesome to, that you, uh, you know, were able to incorporate that into your gimmick and that you um, were able to reach out and Hey man, you don't know, you don't know the reach you had, but you, you, you planted the seed. And a lot of times that's what it takes. Um, that's what's important. Yeah, comes, that's all that's important. Yeah. That's that's all you can do. You know, you can't be like, you can't force somebody to go or anything like that. But you can you can plant the seed, and you know, a lot of kids are kids are real um, sponges at that age. And if you can if you can really reach out to them and get them to get in their parents' ears and everything like that, it really helps. Oh man, it was great because there would be some that would come back the following week and they say, "I learned a song at church." And I said, you learned a song? And he said, yeah. I said, well, sing it to me. And they would sing, they would sing Jesus Loves Me to me. That's awesome. You know? That's awesome. That is cool, yeah, man. It was good, it was good yeah. stuff. It was really good. And it's crazy because I guarantee you none of that was thought of for Dutch and, and Chris Champion. They were never thought no. that this would end up doing no, this, no, you know. And no, no. Now, how long did you do the Lucky 13 gimmick? Whew. Oh, man, I don't know. Uh, probably about a year something like that and then just painting the face got old i got tired yeah. of painting it he took 45 minutes just to paint it every night and then wow wow he had to do my whole thing and it, it was a mess i mean it was hard to it was hard to get to the building so early to get it done and go out and sell pictures before the show because that's the best time any guys out there that are listening their baby faces listen to me you can't sell gimmicks during intermission you have to sell gimmicks at the beginning of the show 
Yeah. Because when people go to intermission, they go to the concession stand and they go outside to smoke. You or the bathroom or whatever. Get, yeah. You yeah. make money at the gimmick table unless you're there an hour early and catch them as they come in the door. That's where the money's at when you sell gimmicks. You can't you can't get there if the show starts at eight o'clock, you can't get there at fifteen minutes till eight and put gimmicks on the table and expect them just to go buy them. It don't work yeah. that way. You got to get there. They want to buy the gimmicks from you and they want you to sign it personally in front of them. And you got to, and look, man, when Lucky was selling gimmicks, if they didn't come to the gimmick table, I would take five pictures out to the crowd and say, here, I got two pictures for, I got a picture for a dollar or buy three for $2. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? I would yeah. take the gimmicks to them and make them a deal that they couldn't refuse. And I, I mean, I didn't care. I was paying 27 cents for a picture. Right. As long as I made, right. as as I made a dollar off of it, I didn't care. That's yeah. That adds up for sure. Now uh, there's another question. Cause I've always wanted to ask this and I don't know, have we had anybody that paints painted their face on the show, Jared? I'm not, I'm not thinking of anyone. So yeah, I can't come up with anybody. Right yeah. Well, I'm, I'm no, if I'm missing someone, I'm sorry to you, but when you paint your face now, when when you're in the ring, how is that? Does it run in your eyes? Talk about having your face painted, especially when you're sweating and you're in the ring. Because I mean, I've remembered seeing like Sting and the Road Warriors where it would peel off their face, you know. But you actually had the whole face gimmicked up. Talk about that a little bit. It's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> you have to you have to not try to move your face like to keep it from cracking. Yeah. Uh, after you get it put on and it's fresh, you don't want to smile. You don't want to laugh. You don't want to do anything until after you start sweating. And then after you start sweating, it just pours off because I never use professional clown paint, okay. the powder and all that stuff. I just use wood acrylic paint, the same thing that Chris painted me up with, just wood acrylic paint. It, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't hurt you, but you know, you just paint your face up and try to keep it from cracking before your match. And that's why I never started painting it. I had it timed where I, I got it down to where I could do it in about 30 minutes. So if I knew that they, they were on semi-main and it was going to go for a while and then there was going to be an intermission afterwards, I could wait until semi-main event to start painting my face. And then I'd start painting it again because I would paint it twice. I would paint it before the show and then wash it off and then paint it again right before my match if I was main event or whatever. Yeah, that's cool. So after the lucky gimmick goes away talk a little bit about because i know you end up working for chandler anderson i know there starts to be some drama with that and i remember because i was kind of out of the business i was not in the area any longer but i remember there being a lot of somewhat drama talk about i guess leading up leading from lucky to leading up to working for for them at money mark productions well uh okay so the lucky 13 ended and i was just chris kern again I, I was, well, I guess you could call me the Iceman. I was doing the Iceman gimmick. Right. Talk about that. <laughs> I'm, I'm the only original Iceman that's ever been a professional wrestler. Yeah. Iceman King Parsons never sold a bag of ice. JC Ice never sold a bag of ice. Dean Malenko, nobody. Yeah. So. I sold ice for a living for 10 years. I was the guy that brought the ice truck through the bags, 160 bags in a, in a regular box, 240 in a jumbo box. And I threw the ice in the, in the ice boxes. That was my job. I drove around all day putting ice in ice boxes. So yeah. I called myself ice man. Did I get some heat from Dundee for it? Yeah. First time you ever, what this shit you calling yourself ice man. Wait a minute. Calm down. Calm down. I'm not the ice baby. I'm not JC ice. I'm the Ice Man. 
yeah. because I'm the only authentic ice man. I said, Jamie, how many bags of ice have you ever sold? Well, I ain't never sold no bags of ice, but I've used plenty of them. Combed down my beard. <laughs> I said, well, I, I am the only original ice man that's ever been in this business. And I just, that's, it's on, I tattooed it on the back of my neck and I'm the ice man. That's awesome. I didn't mean, I didn't mean no harm towards you. I wasn't even thinking of you when I did it. Right. Right. Well, all right, Jim. Don't you ever do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, man. Anyway, yeah, I was just doing the Iceman thing, and I was working for Mikey Dunn in that little building over there on Mooresville Highway in Lewisburg. Been there for years and years, man. Been working for him for years. And then Chandler Anderson, uh, that's where I met my girlfriend, Tiffany, as a matter of fact. The um, lady Ken, Tiffany, by the way. The lady Tiffany. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, Taylor Anderson had become his money mark, and they're they're related some kind of way, cousins, I think. And Chandler was a big wrestling fan and wanted to invest money in his show because his 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 ring was falling apart and his PA system sucked, and so Chandler was taking care of him financially, you know what yeah. I mean, and buying this and buying that and buying this and buying that. And I don't really know exactly what happened between them, but they had to come apart. And the next thing I knew, it was either like Chandler said, you're more than welcome to come with me if you want to, or you can stay here with Mikey if you want to. Whatever you want to do, there won't be no hard feelings either way. Yeah. And Chandler was paying good, man. I'm not going to lie. Compared to what Mikey paid, yeah, Chandler, was paying, Chandler was yeah. paying me like double. You know, The, na the name was well, real. Money Mark Productions was real. <laughs> I've heard that. So, yeah. I went where the money was. I went with Chandler and Mikey, you know, he hates me to this day because of it. Why he hates me and not everybody else that jumped ship. I don't know, right. but I'm the only one. I tried to make up with him twice at Gypsy Joe's funeral. I tried to shake his hand. He blew me off. No, he just shook it off. He didn't, he didn't want no part of it. And then there was another night in Tullahoma. I tried to shake his hand again and he blew me off. He didn't want no part of it. And I said, okay, well, that's the last time I'm asking Right. You know, right. And anyway, that ain't got nothing to do with anything. I, I worked for um, I worked for for Chandler Anderson and had a real good run with him. He, me and him and JP, we we're all great friends, you know, and I helped JP uh, come up with ideas in the dressing room and was kind of like the locker room general back then. And a lot of the new guys that were coming in, it was my responsibility to keep them humble and keep them on track, respectful. You know, and let them know, hey, if you're going to be in here, you need to be smart. You need to act right and do right. And, you know, just bring up the, the next generation. Right. And right. That's kind of what the role I played with them. But they would also let the boys know, hey, you got a problem with me? You got a problem? Talk to Chris Kern first, and then Chris Kern will talk to us. You know what I mean? I was the I was the go-to guy in the dressing room. Yeah. And yeah. I loved the responsibility, and I loved working with the young talent. But the problem with them was they didn't listen. Yeah. You know, we had one guy, I'm not going to mention any names, but he was a young guy. And I kept telling him, look, if you're going to be a heel, act like a heel. Don't go out there and act like a baby face. If you're going to be a heel, you need to try to cheat, you know, have a gimmick in your trunk. It's called a phantom gimmick. Whether there's really anything there or not, you pretend like you've got something and you're working it, you know, and you get heat. If you're going to be a heel, you got to get heat. And don't matter how many flips or flops you do, it ain't going to mean shit if they're not pissed off at you. 
Yeah. So he yeah. would go out and he'd say, yes, sir, yes, sir, no problem. And he would go out there and I'd watch the match and it was flip, 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 flop, 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 flip, 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 and no heat. Didn't try to cheat, didn't pull hair, didn't use a gimmick, nothing. So when he came back in the dressing room one night, I laid into him. You know what I mean? I laid into him pretty hard. Yeah. And uh, JT was stand- JP was standing there and Chandler was standing there and when the when the kid almost broke down in tears, they looked at him and said, "I ain't got, I don't feel sorry for you because he's right. Yeah. He told you beforehand what you needed to do, and you went out there and you didn't do it. Then it's on you. You deserve everything you just got." Yeah, mm-hmm. this man's telling you stuff that he's done more than you've ever dreamed of, and you're not listening. I mean, you, <laughs> it, would like, it would be like Gypsy Joe telling me to go out there and do something when I was working for Gypsy, which was the hardest man that I ever worked for because I love Joe, but yeah. man, was he strict, brother. Man, yeah. as a bookie, when he told you to do something the right way, he wanted it done exactly the way he envisioned it in his mind. Not your mind, but the way he envisioned it in his mind. So a lot of the problem that I had with Joe when I was first starting out with him was I didn't wholly understand him. And he would tell me what to do, and I thought I meant what he was saying. I thought I understood what he was saying, and a lot of times I really didn't understand what he was talking about. And I'd go out and do something, like, totally different. And then when I'd come back in the dressing room, he would cuss me. (laughs) (laughs) I took so many many cussings from Gypsy Joe, you wouldn't believe it. And then one night, um, Quentin Charisma looked at me. He said, Kern, do you know why he's so hard on you? I said, no, man, I don't. He said, you notice he's not as hard on everybody else as he is on you. I said, I know, it's just me. He picks on me. He said, well, he's not picking on you so much as I think he knows you've got the ability to go somewhere. You know what I mean? And he's trying to teach you what to do, when to do it, how to do it the right way and the wrong way so that you can go somewhere. A lot of us back here, he don't think we've got the potential, so he don't work as hard on us as he's working on you. He saw something in you. Yeah. And yeah. and when Quentin said that, I was like, God dang, man! I think you might have, you know, I think you might have something there. Yeah. And then he, then when he told me that, I I warmed up to Joe more, you know, and I started taking him outside with me more, and some four twenty more, and smoking <laughs> with him, partying with me, inviting him to my house, and letting him come hang out at my rent own store and stuff like that. And that's where we really got close, man. That's awesome. Um, Yeah, I used to see Gypsy Joe on the daily. You know, he spent the night at my house several times. I I love him. I loved him up until the day he died, and and he knew it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that makes me sad just talking about him. But, yeah, Gypsy Joe, uh, I also got to say that because of him, the only time I ever got to work with Tojo Yamamoto was because of Gypsy Joe. He brought Tojo into Shelbyville. And he and Tojo took some kendo sticks to hold of all the baby faces one night, a big schmoz. And Joe was trying to kill us with his kendo stick, but Tojo was smooth as silk with his. Tojo didn't hurt any of us, but Gypsy, he was he was laying them in. Tojo's uh, kendo, st- kendo stick shots were at work, but Joe was killing us. Wow. And I carried this. Yeah, I carried welts on my back for weeks after that, but it was all Gypsy Joe that was laying it in. Tojo was nice and easy. <laughs> but the rule, let me tell you, the rule was when he said, okay, I got to tell you something. And I'm doing my Gypsy Joe gimmick here. He I, said, I got it, to please. tell you, I got to tell you something. I got my friend coming here tonight. I don't want any of your mother to say nothing to this man. His name is a Tojo. 
His name is Atojoy Yamamoto. You come in here. He's going to sit down. You're going to walk up to him. You're going to say, hello, my name is such and such. And then you walk away. Don't you, introduce, don't you say nothing else to him. If you say one more thing to him other than just, hello, how you doing? My name is such and such. I whoop your mother ass myself. <laughs> that was his instruction on everybody in the dressing room meeting Tojo. We were all allowed to line up and say hello to Tojo. But then after that, leave Tojo alone. Leave him alone. Yeah. Yeah, show your respects, but leave him alone. Yeah. And that's what we did until it was time for Tojo to do his thing. And at the end of the night, it was a big schmoz where the the two heels came out and just beat up all the baby faces and left us laying. And that was Tojo and Gypsy Joe. And that's one of the best nights. That Man, that place came unglued, brother. That cab stand couldn't hold another person in it. And everybody was trying to get inside the ring to beat up Gypsy Joe and Tojo. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Security had to work their asses off. <laughs> okay, well, you know, we talked about Chandler and the Mikey issue there, but then obviously up until 2017 where you had your actual retirement. Talk a little bit about that. It never really happened. Gotcha, okay. I, it never really happened that anybody could notice. I mean, I uh, was working with Bobby Lowe's son. His name was Nick Lowe. Oh, yeah. And uh, my son Christopher uh, had gotten hurt in an accident he tried to do a suicide dive in shelbyville he tried to do a suicide dive between the top rope and the middle rope and his toes got caught on the middle rope and it caused oh, him to man. hit the back of the head he had to be life flighted from shelbyville to nashville mm. and he was brain dead for what he was out for at least 45 minutes holy cow and uh i watched him seize and i was the referee in the mm, match. Mm. That was after I had quit wrestling and started refereeing. Anyway, he hit the floor, started seizing. Ambulance came and got him, and I didn't see him again until 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm. When the doctor, the doctor came to the emergency room and said, uh, Mr. Price? I said, yeah, that's me. He said, uh, would you mind stepping into the chapel with me? I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Because I just knew, man. You know? And... Uh, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, first things first, as a doctor, I shouldn't be saying this, but I'm going to have to say it. Other than a miracle from Jesus Christ, there's no reason why your son should not have some sort of brain damage or anything, but he has nothing. Your wow. son is absolutely fine. He's got six staples. He's got a little bit of amnesia and a concussion. But other than that, as long as he can pass a cognizant test in the morning, he'll be going home. Wow. Wow, man. And I had already prayed to God, you know, the brain starts losing oxygen after, what, seven minutes or something like that? And it's, the brain starts losing oxygen. It starts dying or whatever. Yeah. And he was out for about 45 minutes until they got him to the Vanderbilt, and they put a needle in his brain to stop the swelling. Uh, anyway, I swore to God then that I would never wrestle again and I would never let him wrestle again. So yeah, the following yeah. Saturday was my last match. I wrestled in uh, Money Mark Productions and after the match was over, I just humbly sat down and took my boots off in the ring and uh, I left them sitting in there and I didn't say anything. I didn't make a big spill. I didn't make a big deal out of it. I just walked away. Yeah, yeah. And that was it. That was 2017 and here we are. 
I've made one or two appearances. Hot Rod came to Tullahoma a couple of times, and I, I went and saw Hot Rod and did a little thing with him, made a little guest appearance or whatever. But other than that, I haven't done anything since 2017. Man, brother, I don't. I mean, I wouldn't I blame be, you. You know, I might be one of the only pro wrestlers that's ever really retired from pro wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> you might be, dude. You might. You might be, Chris. That's true. Well, man, this has been an awesome conversation. So we always wrap up every show with our little thing we like to call the name game. So, Chris Kern, would you like to play the name game with us? I would love to play the name game with you. All right. Sounds great. DJ, hit that music. Now it's time to play the name All right, we are back with more with Chris Kern and the name game on Give Me Back My Pro Wrestling. And Jared, let's just take them back and forth, okay? So you start us off with the first name of the name game. All right, tell us about Robert Wallace. Robert Wallace, the man that trained me, Mr. Alabama. Uh, I love him. I absolutely love him. And I owe my whole career to him. Uh, he gives me credit all the time as being one of the easiest trainees that he ever trained. But as far as being a trainer, I, I've never been trained by anybody else, and I wouldn't want to be trained by anybody else. He taught me what I needed to know, uh, did it in less than a year, and uh, I paid him $500 down and $500 the night I started wrestling. It cost me $1,000 to get in the business, and I worked in front of him for about the first six months. And then I branched out and went on my way, and he uh, he's never he's never been anything but proud of me. And I hope that to this day he's still proud of me, and I know he is. I talk to him on Facebook every so often, and he is my main man, and, and I owe my whole career to him. Because if he hadn't been the one, like I said, I couldn't find a way into the business. You know what I mean? If it hadn't been for him, I might not ever have gotten into the business. But I, I owe my whole career to Robert Wallace. That's awesome, awesome man. That's, well, we skip all around here, and we've talked about some of these yeah. guys, but we we've got to wrap it up with these guys too. So, of course, we got to say Lonnie Lane, Carl Houston, Lonnie Lane, the bad boy. The gimmick was his idea. I just ran with it, and I loved him. And he was he was wild as a buck, though, man. Lonnie was the one that would get most of the heat. Believe it or not, I wasn't the one getting most of the heat with that gimmick. It was mostly Lonnie getting it because. Lonnie did a little bit of cheap heat, you know what I mean? He would call them sons of bitches, and, you know, he would cuss the people a little bit to get them riled up. But by God, when he got them riled up, there wasn't no unriling them, you know what I mean? They were pissed. <laughs> they fully were pissed, for real. Yeah, yeah they yeah. were fully riled, yeah. yeah. Lonnie Lane, what a guy. How about Jackie Fargo? The fabulous one, often imitated but never duplicated. My idol. You know, a lot of people think... <laughs> Hulk Hogan was their idol. Ric Flair was their idol. And for me, it was the fabulous one. Um, he was the Hulk Hogan of his day. Um, probably made more money in the business than anybody in his day. Probably had the biggest guarantee of anybody in his day. Um, and what a nice guy, man. He was just an all-around great guy. I remember as a kid, him just being nice to me. He, yeah. he didn't have to be. But yeah. he was nice to me, and he liked me, and I liked him, and he liked my mom, and 
you know, my mom liked him. My mom knew he was married. He knew he was married. They never had anything like that. It was just she worked in a restaurant. He loved eating in that restaurant. He loved me. And it was just, it was what it was. It wasn't nothing romantic between her and Jackie Fargo. It was just, it was just good times, man. And Jackie loved to drink and she loved to sell him beer. (laughs) <laughs> only man that ever tried to buy you too probably so <laughs> yeah exactly all right well we talked about him a minute ago but a little something about blackie west blackie west greg lloyd was his shoot name and I, for a long time i never knew what his shoot name was uh but he was uh he was a handful man blackie was a he was a fistful of dynamite he was uh, a great guy and there's some there's a videotape that came out not long ago of one of the marks had hit him or something and blackie really had got pissed you know at that point yeah and then when we, when we got back in the dressing room he was just as cool as a cucumber you know it was all you know part of the show he shakespeare was, <laughs> you, know, you, mother hit me, you son of a bitch in there he was going on about it but that was blackie i mean he was putting on a show and that he lived for the business he, he lived to make it real uh, he believed if we wasn't trying to make it real, then we wasn't doing our job. Because here's our psychology, man. Every tag team I've ever been with or anybody that I've ever tried to work with, I've tried to instill this in them and, and myself, is you go to a wrestling show, you know what you're there for. And everybody knows that wrestling is what it is. And people say that it's fake. We say it's sports entertainment or theatrical <laughs> art. But my job as a professional wrestler was to hear this. I wanted to hear the people say, you know, that first and second match, that ma- those two matches I think were kind of fake. You could tell that they weren't really hurting each other. But that main event with them Southern Outlaws or that, that main event with those Bruise Brothers, that match was real. I know that match was real because I saw Chris Kern drop kick that guy right in his face, and I know that that blood was real because I watched him cut him with that hook. There's no way that that shit wasn't real. I know that main event was real. Chris Kern and Hot Rod Biggs really did try to hurt them Morton boys, and that and I'm pissed. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I yeah. felt like that was my job. Every every other match could be fake if it wanted to be, but the match I'm involved in, by God, we're gonna make them believe it was real. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. How about Arvel Hutto? Wow, Arvel Hutto, the guy that really gave me. Uh, I was with him like. The first time I won the Tennessee uh, Tag Team Championships against Mephisto and Dante was with Hutto. We had been working a gimmick up in Taft, Tennessee, when I first came away from Athens. And uh, me and Hutto started wrestling in Taft. And it didn't hold but maybe 100 or 150 people, but they were religious. Every Saturday night, they were there. And we ran a program there for about eight months. And then we finally brought it to the Fayetteville National Guard Armory and drew about six or 700 people where Mephisto and Dante dropped the straps to us that night. And, uh, man, it was a great, great night. My great, my grandmother actually owned a restaurant in Huntsville and sold about 150 advanced tickets for that show and uh, made Arvel happy and made Danny happy because they were the promoters. And there's another guy that used to run with him. His old name was Thurman Dolan. And uh, I don't know if y'all have ever heard of a guy named Thurman Dolan out of Florence, Alabama, but he wrestled as a... Uh, the, the Grand Wizard was the name yeah. of the wrestling Okay. And uh, Thurman Dolan, what a great guy he was. He was the, the acting promoter or whatever and uh, always gave me a lot of respect. And uh, I always gave him the respect that he deserved, too. It's awesome. Uh, 
Thurman was on the list, but you Thurman took care a- of him. I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the oh, next, man. that's all okay. good. We like it. You're you're doing it, man. So Sammy Manier. Yeah. Sammy Manier, the guy that ran um, Lewisburg, and he ran Columbia, and he ran Pulaski, and he ran Tullahoma, him and a guy named Tommy Reed. And Tommy used to call me up, and he'd say, hey, Kern, this is Tommy Reed. I'd say, yes, sir. I got a $15 spot in Pulaski, Tennessee on Friday night. Do you want it? It's a hill spot for 15 bucks. Do you want it? I'd say, can I ride with Big Mike? And he'd say, yeah. I'd say, hell yeah, I want it. <laughs> and I'd go to work. I'd go to work for fifteen dollars. But yeah, Sammy Manier and Tommy Reed—they always took uh, not financial good care of me, but they made sure that I didn't get hurt or they didn't hurt the Chris Kern. You know, they they kept me strong. They didn't job me out to nobody or let me get hurt by nobody. And uh, I think Sammy and Tommy and and you know they they were great promoters and they always had good houses too, man. They packed it out. Let me tell you a little story about them. Pulaski, Tennessee. I'm wrestling against the Junkyard Dog. Oh wow! First time, first time I had ever wrestled a major WWE superstar. Man, I was nervous, and there was probably 600 people there, and I guess probably 500 of them were black, and 100 of them were white. Yeah. I I go to the ring and I do my heel thing and I'm talking about how great Chris Kern is and blah 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 just doing a microphone spill and how I'm going to destroy this junkyard dog and this old man and he's going I'm going to kill him I'm not just going to hurt him but I'm going to kill him well all of a sudden that song another one bites the dust comes on he comes out doing his gimmick he's swinging that chain and he gets in the ring and he didn't tell me nothing about the match what we were going to do or anything. I backed him into the turnbuckle. I gave him a shot to his head. He no-sold it. You know what I mean? That big, hard head. Yeah. And I backed yeah. him, and I hit him again with my fist, and I sold my fist. He didn't sell it. So he grabbed me, shot me across to the turnbuckle. I fed out for a clothesline. He picked me up on his shoulder, backed me up to the other turnbuckle, and then he did his big thump. One, two, three. The match lasted probably 30, 45 seconds. <laughs> but you mm-hmm. If you would have thought that it had went an hour, because when he beat me that quick, it meant so much because they had been waiting for so long. You know, I'd been talking on the mic and stuff, and I'd been building myself up. And then finally, when he came to the ring and the bullshit was over with 45 seconds later, 600 people were on their feet and they were jumping up and down. And it was a beautiful thing. And he made a lot of money at the gimmick table that night after the show. Because yeah. he was selling Polaroids for five bucks a piece. And I mean, he went through stacks and stacks of Polaroid camera film. I mean, stacks of it. Wow. That's awesome. Wow. Good story. How about Freddie Morton? Freddie Morton, the guy that ran the Grand Slam, sold me my first pair of good-looking wrestling boots. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, those red boots that I wore for so long. Those were compliments of Freddie Morton. Uh, Freddie was a a great guy. Freddie was all business. He was all about wrestling, but he was all about making money. And if he couldn't, if you couldn't make money for him, then you didn't stay on his card. It was that simple. If you wasn't drawing people, then you wasn't going to stay. He didn't pull no punches. He either told you that he liked your work or he would tell you that he didn't like your work. And uh, I was blessed enough to be one of the guys that stayed on his card for a great long time. Yeah. Uh, I listened to guys like Big Mike. Big Mike taught me what to do, when to do, and how to do, and you know, and it worked. And I mean, I got to stay on the card with Freddie Morton in Columbia at the Grand Slam before anybody did it. I mean, he did it first, you know. 
and I was part of it, and I was thankful to be there. Very cool. Very cool. Well, this next guy on the list is one of our favorite episodes. He's actually really high up in the rankings as far as downloads. It was a great episode. Really cool to talk to him. Got to know him a little bit more than I ever did, and, and his name's Rick Reynolds. Wow. Forsaken. Rick Reynolds. Mm-hmm. Man, I love him. What is there not to love? I mean, how right. can you not love how can you not love Rick Reynolds? Yeah. Uh, most laid back, easygoing guy, but don't piss him off because right. he's got he's got them hands, boy. Yeah. <laughs> and the hands will hold you quick. You better know what you what you're dealing with. Yeah. You know, if you don't know, he will smarten you up real quick. Yeah. Uh yeah. but you know, I've never had a problem with him. Never did want a problem with him. I mean, I knew better. Mm-hmm. I knew I knew who he was, what he could do, and and I, I never disrespected him, and I never will. I think Rick Reynolds is one of the greatest guys in the business. Uh, big, strong, quick, but fast. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just agile. You know, yep. and yeah, loved it. Love him. Yeah. Love him to death. He's one of our favorite shows, and, and we've had a lot of great shows, but, man, he's a great one, and it was a great conversation. At the last reunion, he talked about, like, what if, you know? And I, I don't know if y'all were there, but he said, what if? You know, what if today was the last day that we ever got to have a reunion? Yeah. But not only what if today was the last day that you ever got to see me, or I got to see you, or you got to see us, or they, all of us got to see you. Just what if we never have another reunion again? Are you satisfied with the career that you had? But better yet, what if today was our last day on earth? Are you satisfied with the life that you led? Are you satisfied with your relationship with Jesus? I mean, he took it. He took it and he shot straight with it, man. And it left all of us speechless. I left that. I left that reunion, you know, a little closer to God that day because of Rick Reynolds. You know, that's amazing. Awesome, man. Yeah. How about Hot Rod Biggs? My brother, my brother from another mother, <laughs> probably, my, probably my favorite tag team partner of all time. I have yeah. to say, we had a lot of stuff in common. You know, we spent a lot of time in the backseat of a car, 420, and we, we, would, we would talk about the match that we were going to have as we were sitting in the car, and we would talk about, you know, the kid that we wanted to get the heat on and the one we wanted to get the hot tag to, and we would just plan everything out. And uh, Rod has some great ideas. I can't take credit for a lot of the ideas that we did as the Bruce Brothers. I can, I can take credit for taking him under my wing and showing him what to do, when to do, and how to do. But that's just things that I learned listening to Big Mike. But everything that I taught Hot Rod is something that somebody taught me. I was just passing the torch along to him. But Rod was great before... I ever he ever got with me. I mean, he already knew the business. He was trained by uh, Larry Latham. Larry Latham. So, I mean, to be trained by Larry Latham, one half of the Blonde Bombers. Are you kidding me? I mean, right. What better? Right. What better? Yeah. What better trainer can you have? Not much. So, <laughs> he was already he was already smart to the business. He already knew kind of what he was doing. Rod never. I love Rod. Rod, please don't get mad at me for saying this, but your his bumps were always kind of awkward, and I always kind of worried about the way he took his bumps. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. Rod's style was Rod's style, and it's what worked for him. Sometimes he would take bumps, and I'd be like, "Oh God, that had to hurt." You know what I mean? <laughs> but, he, but he would come back, and he wouldn't be hurt. You know what I mean? He would be just fine. Yeah. Uh, 
but yeah, and as far as getting color, man, golly, dude, talking about somebody that could juice and loved to juice, man. He wanted to juice every match. Um, had to hold him back off that gig every once in a while. I said, no, we don't need it tonight, you know, yeah, not in tonight. Yeah, that's let's funny. Take it, let's take it for two weeks down the road because he was gig happy, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, and it was it was good for the business. It's what the people wanted to see back then. But it, we, I didn't want him to do it too much. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We we wanted to get it done, but we wanted the time to be right. I had of to break course. down when yeah. the time was right. You know what? You know. Yeah. But yeah, I love Hot Rod Biggs. He's he's my boy. I can't I can't say anything bad about him. I love him to death. Yeah, yeah, that's another great interview we had. It was great. Oh yeah, great, great interview, man. Yeah, well, thank you. Appreciate that. Well, the last one on the name game, and and I think you're going to answer this one with a great answer here. And I we saved her for last because I feel like she probably holds the most important spot in your life is Lady Tiffany. Oh man, <laughs> yeah, she uh, she's she's my rock. She's. She's my daily basis, man. She's everything to me. Um, we've got a daughter together. Her name is Scarlett, and she's got a daughter that's named Lisa. I've got another daughter named Sarah Beth, and then I've got my son Christopher. Uh, all together, we've got five children. And yeah. uh, Tiffany came along with me in 2013. We got together, and there's quite a bit of age difference between us. I'm not going to lie about that. There's 18 years difference between us. But she's an old soul, and she we've got a lot of things in common. You know, she likes the same music I like. We like the same TV shows, and we both love pro wrestling, and we've, we've got a lot in common. Uh, I saw her in the crowd one night, and I said, I want your phone number, and she shook her head no. <laughs> I said, I'm going to get your phone number. She kept shaking her head no. So she hit me up on Facebook about a month later. She said, hey, do you remember me? I said, refreshing my memory. <laughs> and she said, oh, the girl that you said you were going to get her phone number. I said, oh, yeah. Well, listen, my Facebook thing ain't working right now very well. I'm having trouble with my Facebook. Will you just message or text message me from your phone? And so she sent me a text message directly to my phone. I said, see, I told you I was going to get your phone number. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good move, kids. Hey, you gave a lot of the younger talent good advice earlier. I think that's just good advice right there, too. <laughs> yeah. So. I got her phone number and we started dating and we had it kind of rocky at first, you know what I mean? Kind of rocky at first, but sure. it took a minute. We broke up for just a little while, but we got back together and we've been together solid now for over 10 years. So that's awesome. Yes. And I love her. I tell, I'd never let a day go by that. I don't tell her that I love her at least 10 times a day. And yeah, uh, yeah she's, she's the one that leans on me and I lean on her and we're a partnership. It's not, she's the boss or I'm the boss or anything like that. We're a partnership and she helps me and I help her. And that's the way I think it should be, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. You got to have that in your life, brother. We're a tag team. You know? There you go. That's the, that's a big tag. That's the important tag team right there. So I yeah. tell you what, man, you have passed the name game with flying colors, brother. So good job. Yeah, Definitely you. appreciate thank that. You. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, we, you know, as we wrap up this show, we always end it with the Sheik's favorite question of the show. Maybe the second favorite. It's always the last second favorite after Mount Rushmore. He always asks this question at the very end. So hit it off, Sheik. So, Chris, if you could look back on your career and you could think, you know, that's my favorite match ever that I had, you know, give us one or two if you need to, but like one or two favorite matches of all time. 
Ooh, boy. Uh, <laughs> big ass, favorite, right? That's a big one. Yeah, favorite matches of all time. Okay, I'll start with one that I thought would be my favorite match of all time, but it was the biggest disappointment that I ever had. It was McMinnville, Tennessee at Jake's Auction Barn. And uh, Donnie Eaton and beautiful Bobby Eaton uh, versus me and Mike Woods. Me, Mike Woods. Yeah. Um, I thought I finally get to wrestle Bobby, man. I'm finally getting to wrestle Bobby. Of course, the dressing rooms were still separated, and I didn't know that he was so lit. Let's say lit. Sure. That he, he needed the turnbuckle to hold him up. Man, he didn't, he was in a bad situation that night, and he was in a, he was in a bad way. Yeah. So the disappointment factor was tremendous, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but as far as the best match I've ever had, let's say I was running my own show here in Fayetteville. I called it IWO Championship Wrestling, and I probably say this because this is the night I made the most money. Okay, smart. I, I had trained a guy named Danny Armstrong, and he looked like an Armstrong, so I named him Armstrong. <laughs> I and, love it, yeah. I was working for a guy named Joe Parsley who owned a convenience store. It was the most popular convenience store in town. I asked Joe as a favor for drawing power if you would be the special guest referee. You know how sometimes you let a mark in to do the spot for the special guest referee. Right, so football coach, be, sheriff, whatever, yeah. yeah. Whatever. So this guy owned the convenience store, and I invited him to come and be a special guest referee. The crowd was 650 people. Wow. Ringside seats were $7 a piece. I had 15 seats on each side of the ring, so automatically that's $420 just on the first row, Man. not counting anybody else. So $6 for general admission, do the math. I made $3,000 plus that night. You know what I mean? Yeah. And one of the biggest shows I, I've ever had that I ever drew money. You know what I mean? Yeah. Being the main event. Anyway, finish was Joe did the old gimmick where he squatted down on all fours and Danny pushed me and I tripped over the referee and he pinned me one, two, three. Got the big baby face pop. Then I attacked him afterwards and got color on him and juiced him up and got my heat back, you know? And by that point, everybody in the crowd was ready to kill me. But that was one of my favorite ones, uh, just mainly because it was my town and my show, and I made a lot of money and got over. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, yeah. But some of my other favorite matches, I have to say, were with Arbel Hutto wrestling Mephisto and Dante. Oh, learning, yeah. yeah. Learning, learning the business, learning what to do, when to do, how to do, what not to do, and taking those cool, those briefs, those terribly stiff shots from Cool Breeze Williams <laughs> as, as a green guy and learning from Cool Breeze for absolutely making no kind of mistake whatsoever other than just being green and Cool Breeze just wanting to hit somebody real hard with a chair. Right. I was, I was that guy. Yeah. I was that woman. But because he hit me so hard in front of my hometown, brother, people went crazy. I mean, they went absolutely crazy. They hated the devils and they... Tommy was married to a woman named Wanda at the time, and she was their valet. And they tried everything they could to get their hands on Wanda because she would hit me with a pitchfork or, you know, stab me with it or whatever. But, yeah, some of my greatest matches were with Arbel Hutto. Oh, and that's another one of my favorite nights, man, down in uh, Huntsville, Alabama. I just remembered that match. Wrestling at the J.C.'s building at the fair. 
the Alabama State Fair, we had it inside the JC's building, and we probably had 500 people away from the fair inside the JC's building to watch wrestling. And Bobby D was the promoter. You remember Bobby D, the old referee for Nick Gouis? Yeah, ever yeah, heard of Bobby D? absolutely. Bobby, yep. D, Bobby D was the promoter. Chase was Chase D. His son was there as the ring announcer or whatever. And I was wrestling Arvel House's main event against Arvel Hoto. They had brought me in, and I, I got on the microphone, and I started talking about how great Tennessee was and how great I was because I'm from the great state of Tennessee and all the things that we have in Tennessee versus all the things that you don't have in Alabama. We've got Memphis, the home of the blues. We've got Nashville, home of country music. We've got Knoxville, home of the UT Vols, and all you've got down here is one lonely little football team called the Alabama Crimson Tide. And I guess mm. you people are real proud of the Alabama Crimson Tide. Anyway, the big heel spill, you know, yeah, how great yeah. I am and how smart you are. Anyway, they hit Hutto's music all of a sudden, man. He, they played Abracadabra. And Hutto come running out to that ring, and he jumped in. He started tatering me. Well, not really, but boom, 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 boom. That crowd went nuts, brother. <laughs> and we went, we went for about 20 minutes of Hutto just calling whatever he wanted to call as a baby face, whatever he wanted me to do. And I listened to him, you know, and he led me right through that match. And we had him in the palm of our hand from the start to finish. And at the end, at the end of it, when I put him over with like a, a Pat O'Connor roll up, one, two, three, and he was gone. It was beautiful, man. I mean, it was some things you just never forget, you know, and that's one thing I'll never forget is that feeling. And then when Bobby D came to me and he said, man, that was one of the best matches I've ever seen. And for Bobby D to say that that was one of the best matches that he had ever seen, after all the matches that Bobby D had ever seen before me, man, I was so humbled by that. You know what I mean? That's awesome. He said, y'all, he said, y'all worked that crowd perfectly. He said, that's one of the best matches I've ever seen. And here's your envelope. And, and at that time, I was probably making 25 or 30 everywhere I went. Yeah. He gave me he gave me $75 that night in my envelope. And I was wow. like, wow. I felt so good, man. I was I was floating on cloud nine. I couldn't believe. It. I, all the way home, I, I kept looking at my envelope, thinking, "Man, I made seventy five bucks at one show. I couldn't believe it." That's amazing. Wow. wow. Yeah. Well, Chris, brother, it has been awesome to have you on, and thank you for telling your story like you have. I know there's a whole bunch more, but we'll save that for part two. But I tell you what, man, right. it's been just a real honor to have you on, and just thank you for doing this show with us, man. Hey, man, thank y'all for allowing me to tell my story. You know, this is the only time, really, that I've ever been able to just open up and tell the things that I've told today. I've never really told anybody except the ones that are closest to me. And knowing that this is going out to a whole lot of people, that means a lot to me. And I want people to hear it. And I want them to understand something about the professional wrestling business is that it is a business. And to all you young guys that are out there treating it like it's a PlayStation 3 game, stop it. no really learn the craft i love it learn the craft learn how to get heat learn how to get sympathy as a baby face learn how to make money if you want to do spots then do spots but make them make sense and tell a story with your matches and it's good guy versus bad guy it's not just two guys in a pair of tights and a pair of wrestling boots it's a good guy and it's a bad guy it's good versus evil and to all you young guys man listen to me if you will do it that way, you will get more of a response and you will get a fatter paycheck because you will draw bigger crowds. Man, that's it. 
That's the end of it. I love it. You can't say anything better than that. So thank you so much, Chris Kern. Ladies and gentlemen, it has been our honor to have Chris Kern on the show today. Jared. Just appreciate your time, man. Thank you for coming on and and a pleasure to talk to you, man. Thank you so much. It's been an honor and I'll be glad to do it again. Anytime y'all need me, I'll do it. All right, brother. We'll hold you to that. Thank you, sir. And honestly, I appreciate you coming on and, and we'll talk soon. Okay, buddy. Sounds good to me. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks again to Chris Kern. We'll be right back to wrap things up with the Plastic Chic on Give Me Back My Pro Wrestling. This is the big picture, Michael Jablonski. Don't forget to tune in every week to Jablonski's Pissed Off on the Mike Jablonski's Pissed Off YouTube channel. The Bob in this sport. He's going to tell you all about it. He doesn't care what you think. You're gonna hear all about it by Jump Lusky! you're a fan of rock music i'd really appreciate it if you took a moment to check out my podcast it's called the decibel geek podcast we've been doing it for about 10 years now we talk about kiss we talk about ozzy we talk about motley Crue and guns and roses and metallica we talk about all the legends from the 60s and on up to brand new bands that you should be hearing about today that you're not going to hear on the radio it's Decibel Geek. Wherever you find your podcasts, you'll find us there. If you love rock and roll, I can almost guarantee you're going to love my show. Oh, Sheik, one more time, man. Chris Kern is awesome, dude. That was really cool. Yeah, man. I mean, uh, just, just right from the very start when he talks about being like, four or five years old and doing the Fargo strut in the ring, man. That's, that's, uh, that's yeah, amazing. You asked that question and then a whole bunch of stuff unveiled from right there, man. You were like, did you ever do the Fargo strut as a fight in the ring? With yeah. It's like, <laughs> holy cow. Ring, like, what? Um, yeah. And then his aunt Sherry dated Andre the giant. I mean, there's so much to that, man. It just, it would, it like that right there told me this was going to be a good show from there on out, you know, and man did some stuff stuff in wcw i mean i don't want to do a recap of the whole show but man it was a really good show and i'm i'm happy to have had him on here he was on the list at you know this magical list i'm sure that everybody is tired of hearing about but yeah man we just had a good conversation with him i was i was happy with that yeah i mean you know pretty pretty interesting story which i have no doubt has a lot of lot 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 of truth to it uh, the Jackie Fargo trying to buy him for yeah, I know. $20,000 off his mom. I mean, like, uh, I mean, dude, I, I, yeah. that's, that's so, uh, that's so crazy. I mean, there's no way to make that up. It's so crazy. It's like, I know, I know. Cause I mean, I've heard stories of Jackie Fargo drinking and like, you know, back when the Dundees, the Lawlers and the Jarrett's all lived semi close to one another, Jackie came and played Santa Claus. And so he started at the Jarrett's and then he came to the Dundees and then he went to the Lawlers. And apparently when he got to the Dundees, he was pretty well lit. And Jamie tells this story pretty well. And then he ends up ruining their Christmas. <laughs> ruins the Lawler's Christmas because he was falling all over the place. And yeah, Sandy wants whiskey, boy. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, man, Jackie Fargo is a definite true legend. No question there, the fabulous one. But anyway, man, great interview. Glad to have him on. Glad to learn more about him. And he's just a good dude, man. Just really happy to hear that. So, yeah, had a good time with that one. Yeah, absolutely, man. It was a great interview. And, you know, we learned something about somebody we didn't really know that much about that, uh, you know, he had some great stories. And, you know, even our, even you as well prepared as you always are didn't even have some of the stories he he ended up telling us so that's that's pretty awesome I know. And, you know, guys, I don't want to spill the beans, but our next few episodes are going to be great. We've got guys like Scott Spade, Billy Montana. I've been in contact with my old buddy, Steve-O, who helped me out a lot when I was first getting in the business. Reno Riggins. I mean, there's so many other guys I want to mention. But right now, I tell you, to be honest, you know, uh, the next episode we've got is going to be with Scott Spade. He's actually a buddy of Rick and Shane and from Chicago, Illinois. We're going to bring him on, see what's up with him, and hopefully we'll have just as great an interview with him as we have with all the other guys so interested another one we'll learn more about because neither of us know him so it'll be fun man and got some good names coming up and very excited hopefully we'll uh we'll keep rolling keep this train rolling just like it is you know so yeah absolutely man it's going good yeah well as always with everything i always ask if you could go rate and review us on spotify apple if that's where you listen to us if you don't just keep listening on the app that you like also youtube make sure you're subscribed follow notify whatever you got to do on there we thank you for that leave us a comment you know halloween fan mark is always great about leaving comments thank you want to give you a shout out there brother you know it's always good to hear from the people that listen and and tell us what they're thinking of the shows very much appreciate that again we're at GMBMPW on all the social media platforms Facebook, Twitter, X, whatever, Instagram, YouTube, whatever it is, just at GMBMPW. Make sure you're following us on there so you can hear and see all about it. Also, if you've got a business or event or anything you want to promote coming up, let us know. We'd love to run an advertisement for you on the show. Got great rates and all kinds of opportunities for that. Depending on what you want and how much you need, we can make it happen. I promise we can even run it on both of my shows live and in color with wolfie d and this one the mothership give me back my pro wrestling you just let us know we'll be happy to help you out with that as well you know once again we just appreciate the listeners so much y'all mean so much to us we definitely appreciate you coming on this ride with us and supporting us as you do you know with that being said brother you got anything else you'd like to share uh you know i did see a few you know, kind of big names were released by WWE the other day. Yeah, that's shame. Ziggler and uh, Shelton Benjamin and yeah, uh, what is it, Emma or Tennille Dashwood, whatever you want to. So I mean, some bigger names. Uh, yeah, if they want to, they could be somewhere else probably pretty soon. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, Dolph Ziggler, 20-year career, man. It's a shame. They just seem to never really put the full, put the pedal on the gas with him. And Shelton Benjamin, I, I just feel like he's one of the biggest missed opportunities as far as athletic and, you know, quality in the ring. I just feel like he's one of the guys that should have been 
much higher on the card or at least given that opportunity more times than the one or few times he had the intercontinental title you know but right yeah little she wanted me to let let everybody know that mustafa ali got released as well yeah oh no yeah well sorry little sheik (laughs) sorry to hear that but yeah there there were some names on there some of them you know bigger than others but you know it's it's always a breath of fresh air whenever hopefully they land on their feet and you know i think a few of them will do fine on the on the show i mean you know there's so many opportunities with wrestling these days for a guy to even work his way on the indies you know he, he can oh yeah he can live you know so yeah depends on how much you want to do that i mean matt cardona and them have showed you can you can work pretty good on the indies for money i, I don't know exactly what he's pulling in but yeah you know well, depends on what you want to do, basically. Exactly. We hope y'all land on your feet. We definitely appreciate the years of entertainment y'all have given us, and hopefully we'll see you somewhere soon, probably in AEW. But, you know, as things go, you know, that AEW is getting pretty full, you know? So mm-hmm. it's it's yeah. how many how many guys do they want to absorb from WWE? It, it does feel like the natural next step for a lot of the guys that end up leaving WWE, they do seem to usually end up in AEW. EW as if you're a name of any kind, you know, so, but yeah, I think that's it for the day. And once again, we thank you all so much for listening. So for our guest, Chris Kern, my co-host, the plastic sheet, Jared street, I'm Jimmy street and we're give me back my pro wrestling. See y'all next time. Don't forget. Fight forever. Hey, that's my line. (laughs) (laughs) With a tear in my eye. This is the greatest moment in my life. This has been a James Rock Street production.